Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by my friend, Blaine Roden. In this episode, Blaine and I discuss the intersection of cannabis and crypto and what drew him to both products and industries. We then discuss the philosophy of Bitcoin and why Blaine was inspired by the prospects of decentralization. Blaine describes how he learned not to chase price actions of different coins, but rather to develop a thesis on the underlying assets. We next discuss Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper and how it was Satoshi's solution to avoiding another 2008 global financial crisis. This reference point is particularly timely as we publish this episode in May 2023 when regional banks are collapsing on a seemingly weekly basis. We next discuss the idea of stablecoins, hard wallets, and self-custody of crypto assets. From there, we discuss the FTX collapse and speculate on what was actually happening behind the curtains. We then talk about NFTs, the democratization of currency, and Wall Street bets. We compare and contrast the benefits of mining NFTs on Polygon versus Solana. We switch to the user experience and discuss platforms for networking with other crypto enthusiasts, such as Discord, Twitter, and Telegram, as well as exchanges for minting NFTs, such as Exchange Art and Boombox. We end the conversation theorizing about the future intersection of traditional finance and cryptocurrency. Please note that we will be discussing a number of crypto tokens, and nothing in this episode should be viewed as investment advice. This discussion is for entertainment and philosophical purposes only. Nothing about cryptocurrency is simple. Get over it and start figuring this stuff out. The principles of decentralization, cryptography, elimination of trusted third parties, and currency independence will change the economy forever for the better. The traditional economy, especially the U.S. dollar, is at a dangerous position today, possibly more fragile than at any time since becoming the global reserve currency after World War II. It's my firm conviction that cryptocurrency will prove a critical technology in transcending the Ponzi scheme of an economy we've built based on debt lending and central banking. This outro is titled Bitcoin is Freedom. Outro is available for this and all episodes at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist Entangled the Vibes. Please enjoy. So good evening, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm very excited to be joined by my friend, Blaine Roden. Blaine, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jordan. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Doing great, man. It's uh, really, really excited to have you on the show. Um, for the listeners, Blaine, uh, I've been very blessed to get to work with full-time uh, at our firm, Key Investment Partners, for about a year now, several years, uh, if you include Blaine's first internships. So, um, you know, we, uh, we're typically talking about cannabis in our day-to-day life, and I'm sure that'll come up in this conversation as well. But uh, we wanted to really focus this conversation, flip the script, and have Blaine educate me and the listeners about uh, cryptocurrencies. So, you know, before uh, we get into all that, Blaine, maybe uh, it'd be great if you could give the listeners a little bit of your biographical background and how you got into the um, seemingly different industries of cannabis and crypto yeah absolutely uh thanks again for having me on jordan so i got into well i guess i'll take a step back um i have a food and resource economics degree from the university of florida my family's been involved in agriculture for about six generations now and i always knew i wanted to get involved in the industry but thought i wanted to get involved in a more 
high growth area than maybe just, you know, the typical sweet potatoes or onions, which my dad's involved in. And I really started to research what was a high growth industry or high growth sector in the agriculture industry and quickly found cannabis. A high growth sector that gets you high. (laughs) Yeah, no pun intended there. Um, But yeah, I had always been a fan of the cannabis plant in college and thought how cool it'd be to kind of mix a hobby or passion of mine with a career. And I started to do some research into ways I could get involved in the industry and thought, man, it would be really cool to get involved in the capital market side. But I wasn't really sure how to do that. So I decided that a sort of safer route for me would to be to go to law school and get involved potentially on the legal side if I couldn't find a way into the capital market side. Uh, it's pretty, you know, I think when I started looking at it, I'm not even sure if there was dedicated cannabis funds back in like 2014, 2015 when I was starting to get interested. So I did some research on law schools that had cannabis programs that I thought would really allow me to kind of leverage that program and background and get involved in the industry. So I was lucky enough to find the University of Denver and then again, lucky enough to get a full tuition scholarship to go there. So it really kind of took out the risk of what I saw as you know moving away from home and going into an industry that I didn't really know that was still federally illegal and said, all right, I can give this a shot. Uh, fast forward to my first semester in law school, I quickly realized that I did not want to be a practicing attorney. <laughs> and then I, again, was drawn to what I thought and still believe is a generational wealth opportunity in the cannabis market. Uh, did some research, found you know a handful of firms and was lucky enough to find Key. And I was really drawn to you guys, one, because of the institutional backgrounds, but two, because of the age of you all. I wasn't really super interested in working for you know, 60-year-old white men that didn't really know the plan. I was looking for people that understood the plan and were interested in it themselves. And, you know, you guys fit that criteria perfectly. And then I think I did four internships with you all through law school before joining full-time, which I think every single one after each one, I was like, man, this is just, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. This is really what I want to do. So I, you know, made that jump from law school to the private equity side and now have not looked back since it's been it's been really great and it's funny because i think cannabis and crypto have a lot of stuff in common and i really think again no pun intended the high growth of both industries and the volatility volatility of those industries really attracted me to it i i thought man this is somewhere where if you do your diligence and you're really active in the space you can do some damage yeah so that's kind of how i found that too that's really interesting um, did you consume growing up and was that of interest to you or is it more just you saw how uh, high growth the industry was? So I, I consumed cannabis growing up and I kind of always found myself more drawn to the plant than to alcohol. I always had more fun when it was like me and some friends sharing a joint than going out to a club or going to a party. And I said, man, you know, there's got to be other people out there like, right, that just enjoy this a little bit more than alcohol. It seems to be a lot healthier way to consume and, you know, kind of can get elevated than alcohol. And I was just really interested in it. And then I said, man, it, it's a legal market in a few states. You know, at that point, it's probably Colorado, California, Washington. It's like, that's just, that's so cool to me that it's legal. And then did some more research on, you know, the drug wars and everything that kind of happened to cannabis. I think I found an article that said at one point, cannabis was the most used um, substance in, pharm- in pharmaceutical goods. And then it became illegal. And I was like, holy cow. So, you know, there's, real medical benefits to it that we had 
really enjoyed for decades but then the drug the war on drugs changed it from cannabis to marijuana because it sounded more you know like a spanish money maybe minority influenced drug that people could really turn against uh the population and i was like this is just so intriguing and then that's when i did some research into like can you actually invest in it is there people that are taking in capital what does this really look like and so like, wow, there's a real opportunity here to get involved in a meaningful way. I'm, I'm trying to do the math of your age, but you also had a pretty unique perspective of, of growing up in Colorado, partially at least, you know, for, as, as it had been the first state to legalize. So it's very interesting kind of cultural dynamics, right? That, you know, most folks before you didn't really have. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Florida um, and I, it was actually really culturally relevant in Florida as well. And I think what another thing that drew me to it was I'm from Vero Beach, Florida, which is a really heavily um, citrus industry is huge there. But citrus greening was killing all these crops. And there were just a lot of these growers were struggling, you know, what had been their family for decades. And I was like, man, I really think cannabis could be one of these new cash crops that could help these growers. And that was my first actual interest in the legal side was like, maybe I can go learn in Colorado and come back to Florida and I'll just legalize it. And then, you know, kind of reality hit. And so it's not just that easy to go and be like, it's a great plan. We should legalize it for adult use. You know, it's maturely spent something like $25 million trying to get it legalized this year alone. And, you know, it's a bigger task than that. But um, yeah. And then coming out to Colorado in for law school in Denver, you know, having something at DU that had a student international cannabis bar association, a professor that helped write the laws, you know, a real community around it, not just, oh, it's an illegal thing. You're going to sell drugs was just so interesting to me. It felt so real. And uh, it was just really exciting to see that side of the industry. For sure. For sure. And I think, you know, I'm probably like eight years older than you. And even my generation, it was very, um, different, you know, and I, I even see like now how my perspective was biased about it and how I was dismissive of it. Like my journey with the plant's been different. Like I was a huge boozer in high school, college, you know, I would smoke pot occasionally, but I never bought it until I actually moved to Colorado. You know, I think I was, um, like I said, a bit dismissive of it. I was like, Oh, that's for lazy stoners who just want to sit around and get fat and, you know, whatever. I, I don't know. Just, I, I, and I think now in hindsight, I recognize that there's certainly cultural factors that encourage alcohol over cannabis and, you know, we can get into all that, but, you know, just point is, um, I think as I moved to Colorado, right. And had access to it, that was legal. And I knew it was safe and didn't have to buy from a drug dealer. And I started to consume it. I just naturally started to shift more, um, from alcohol to cannabis um, you know, started to work with psychedelics more as well. That really facilitated things. And I think I just, you know, started to see how cannabis on a, on a, like a micro level psychedelics on a more accelerated level were helping me to kind of break those neural pathways and get out of my head and, you know, continue to evolve and challenge my preexisting assumptions. And one of those big ones that I started to challenge was, you know, what am I getting out of drinking alcohol? Like I, I wake up feeling like shit you know, I eat like shit. It has a ton of calories. I have social anxiety every time about what the fuck did I say last night during the night? It's fun for a while. You know what I mean? And I just like, it just really helped me just force myself to ask those tough questions. Um, and then naturally, you know, working in cannabis, learning about the history of the war on drugs and how 
substances like cannabis and psychedelics were demonized in my opinion now because specifically because they help us to self-actualize and become the best versions of ourselves and you know the structures of society would prefer that we're we're getting drunk and you know not not making the most of our lives so anyway that's that's kind of my like long-winded journey of of cannabis no i love that it's interesting you say that because it was kind of a realization moment for me where you know all my friends in high school and college were like we're going to go get like blackout drunk. And then the next morning they'd be like, well, I don't even know what happened. I'm like, you enjoy that? Like I, I enjoyed where we smoked a joint and we talked about what we want to do with our lives, where we see the world going. I was like, that's just so much more interesting to me. And it really just, you know, turned me off of alcohol and onto the plan a lot more because I found that connection with myself, but also with others that I think, you know, just kind of lowers your inhibitions. And I think really shows people who they are and that's just so much more fun in conversations and getting to know people totally totally um now i'm curious you know as you mentioned you decided to go to law school is a little bit more of a conservative step yet you're super interested in cannabis and crypto which are very much the opposite um so how do you think about that duality in yourself the conservatism with the risk on yeah, that, it's a great question. And I think a lot of that conservatism for law school kind of stemmed from my parents, where they're like, you know, you should do something where if cannabis never becomes federally legal, or because they didn't really have any idea. And they're like, you know, there's only a couple of states. And then for crypto, they're like, it. I mean, I had been trying to get my dad to buy Bitcoin since I was in 10th grade and like 2013. And he just never got it. And he was like, you know, you should just do something where everything that you're interested in fails, you can go be an attorney and make a living. And I was like, you know, that it makes a lot of sense because for me, it was, I don't even, I think after the first internship with you all, I remember talking to my parents, like, do I even need to keep going to law school? Like, I'll just go work for Keith. Like, I don't need to do this. My dad was like, no, you've got to have a backup plan. You've got to just be ready in case things don't happen the way you want. Um, so i, I thankful for that advice and thankful for the education that I got. Uh, but I would say I'm a lot more, I'm, I'm a lot more attracted to risk and volatility than like your typical attorney might be. You know, I think a lot of attorneys are risk averse and I, I just, I love the idea of, again, volatility is just so interesting to me as for the crypto side, like something can, you know, pump 20% in a day or 50% if it's a small altcoin, it could triple in a couple hours. And I thought that was just so interesting to me that there was assets out there that could make life-changing money off of like a thousand dollars. You didn't need, like you weren't just getting a dividend or making 5% year over year. It was a way to financial freedom that I don't think, you know, there hasn't really been, even in the history of humans, the fact that someone in a developing country can become a millionaire off of having a hundred dollar exposure to a crypto asset is it's so intriguing. Yeah, man, I, I fully agree. And there's uh there's so much we could uh, unfold there too, you know, but before we get more in the crypto stuff, just, just to kind of round out, you know, the VC side of things. Um, and it's interesting too, because as you talk about, you know, Going through law school, I think it's it's a great call you made to finish it up and to take the LSATs and pass right and everything. Like as as grueling as it was, it just I think one a lot of the best deal guys that I know or uh, you know have have learned a lot from like Sam Zell. Right, they went to law school 
absolutely hated it. Knew they didn't want to be a lawyer, but it taught them logic. It taught them reasoning. It taught them how to read a legal contract and know what all these terms mean. Because as you know, in venture capital, when the shit hits the fan, that stuff really, really matters. So um, I think uh, it's going to just make you a much more well-rounded person and investor because of it in the long run. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's kind of it's what I've learned as well. You know, I'm fortunate enough that my mentor has a law degree as well. And I got hooked up with him through to you. And he's a lot more of the venture kind of take a risk guy as well. And he always said that, like, you know, just get the because before law school, I would just be like, oh, all I see is upside. Like it's upside, upside, upside. And now I think the ability to see downside, at least I'm building that skill up more, is just becoming more and more helpful. And, you know, like the logical thinking aspect of it has been really interesting and something I it's hard to learn on your own. So, you know, going through the three years of cold calls and reading countless pages and really just focusing on that way of thinking has proved to be pretty beneficial thus far. So tell me about your journey with crypto. How did you first come across it? And when did you first make the decision to buy? Yeah, so I first came across it in high school. Um, admittedly, a lot of my friends were using it to buy things off the Silk Road and illicit substances. And I was like, that's just crazy. And then I was like, well, just keep an eye on it because this Bitcoin thing sounds so weird. Like, it's nothing that I'm used to at all. This crypto asset that it's all public ledger, but everything you read on the news was it's for scamming people and uh, like funneling money and money laundering. I was like, that's just don't make sense. Like someone has to be wrong here. So I kind of dove in a little bit further, really tried to get my dad to buy it. And I think 2013 when I was like a junior in high school and it's just like i said like just buy ten thousand dollars like and you know as a kid who's never had a job like ten thousand dollars was just something you could throw it and my dad's like like you got to go to college dude we're not just throwing ten thousand dollars at it i was like just do it dude so it's every time we talk about it my dad he's like i wish we just would have thrown ten thousand dollars on it uh, we would like none of us would have to work and i was like yeah it was a great learning experience then and then i really kind of dove in and started participating myself uh, in college, one of my buddies had, he had been involved in Bitcoin, um, probably from 2012 or 2013. And he was using it to gamble on Mexican baseball league games. It was really into, you know, kind of the idea behind it as well. Right. So he was like, this is just the coolest thing ever. I think what he had something like a hundred million doge that he would just like give away to people because it was so early. And it was just this really fun interesting thing i was like man again the volatility is crazy like i'm sitting in class and my friend just made five thousand dollars and i was like holy cow like this is so cool and then i started to do some more research into kind of satoshi and the white paper and i was like wow this is you know it's just so different than the traditional financial system and again that ability where people around the world are interconnected and these communities are just you know, flourish. And it's people from all different races, ethnicities, uh, social classes. And it really was kind of like the best ideas. one, And that was just so appealing to me was it wasn't like, oh, this is your last name. So you're this really smart guy. And it was like, oh, you were early to Bitcoin because you thought this and people gave you respect for that. And it was like, wow, that's so cool that just having this sort of mindset was respected. And I think that's what really drew it to me was the idea that You know, it's not just, again, who had the most money or something like that. It was who has done the research or that do your own research thing, like really stuck with me. It was like, man, it's not just watching CNBC and buying the stuff that Jim Cramer tells you. It's spending countless hours 
understanding the industry, where you think trends are going, why they should be going this way, what it means to the traditional financial system and how it could kind of combat it. And I, I thought that was just so interesting. Like the idea that the government didn't have control over Bitcoin, like, whoa, like that's nobody, it's a decentralized asset. And I, I mean, really, it's hard to think of any other things that are truly decentralized, like Bitcoin is in the world, not even just currency. And I was like, man, this is, there's nothing really else like this. Like maybe this could be something. And then, you know, I bought, I think that was like 2018 and 2019. And then you kind of had like that crash. And I was like, oh, that was it. It was a bubble, right? It's done. And I just kind of held on to some Bitcoin, but didn't really watch it. And then I started to think again when I got to law school, like, all right, let's, let's start diving into the actual, you know, thesis behind this space, not just the price action. And that's when I was like, oh, I should like, I started to kind of double down. I think I put every single dollar I had into crypto assets in like 2020, 2021. And I was just like this, again, fortunate enough to have that full tuition scholarship where I wasn't paying for uh, my classes and books and stuff like that. So it's like, I can take the risk. And again, I, I like risk. So I was like fortunate enough to have what I thought was my downside protected in that case. So I was like, let's do it. Let's just go all the way in and see what happens. And again, you know, kind of didn't sell anything, kind of saw my net worth go up and down like a roller coaster and decided that was when I needed to start taking a more, not risk averse to it, but understanding risk a little bit more and saying like, you shouldn't just be, you know, I was a hundred percent into one asset for like, you know, a couple of times and then a hundred percent into another. And I was like, I was too busy trying to chase the price action rather than really developing a thesis on the space and being a more logical investor. And that's actually what led me to NFTs was, it was like, oh, this is another crypto asset class that I can get involved in. And I kind of saw it as like a leverage position on Solana and Ethereum. And I thought that was pretty cool for someone who had a limited capital stack to kind of get involved that way. Um, and it's additionally kind of coincided with my dog got diagnosed with cancer around that time. And I said, well, I want to pay for chemotherapy not going to have asked my parents, not going to ask my fiance's parents for it. I've got to make money on my own. And I said, while I'm in law school, I could probably drive for Uber, probably won't really cover the cost or I could get really into crypto and spend all my free time there. And, you know, it, it paid for his chemotherapy for six months. Uh, just by that, it ended up leading to me being able to buy my fiance an engagement ring when I was in law school and didn't really have a job. And I think that just was so enticing to me financial freedom that I had from this asset class where I could, if I did my own work, it was really beneficial. And it wasn't like I was working for anyone else. Hell yeah, man. That's really cool to hear. So let's, uh, let's start with some of uh, the, I don't want to say basics because when it comes to crypto, nothing's basic, but let's just kind of start from the top for folks who, you know, even after all these years, I'm sure I've heard Bitcoin so many times that it can be frustrating that it's like, I still just don't get it. Right. Like, so let's talk about, um, Satoshi Nakamoto and, uh, is, is that how you say it? Nakamoto? Yeah. Nakamoto. I mean, and it's funny you say that. I feel like I still don't know a hundred percent about Bitcoin or understand it completely. And I feel like I spent a lot of time in it, but, um, I think he, even in like one of the first blocks of Bitcoin, which again, trying to take it back it's, it's this like blockchain technology which i wish i could explain it a little bit better but it's got these blocks um that you essentially you know he inscribed different things on and he inscribed some stuff about the 
financial crash in 2008 and how this was like his attempt to make sure that that didn't happen again or have an asset class that people didn't uh, have exposure to the governments and sort of bad monetary policy and all that stuff. And I thought it was so cool. And to kind of zoom back, there's only ever 21 million Bitcoins and they're mined by the computer hashes and using all this different computing stuff. And to be honest, I don't have as strong of a background on that as I'd like, but I just found that so interesting that it's this, it's like a natural resource, right? Like there's only X amount of Bitcoins ever. And I thought that was a really cool way to understand the value for someone who had no real understanding of the crypto technology from, you know, I, I don't have any real technological background other than just being interested in it. And that just resonated with me. It's like, oh, it's digital gold for lack of a better term. And then you just kind of dive in more and see that the use cases, right? The ability to train, like to take funds across borders, which, you know, some people might not think are great, but go to an airport with $50,000 cash, you're going to get stopped. If you go to an airport with a ledger that has your Bitcoin on it, could be a hundred million dollars and nobody would ever know. And I thought, again, it's just so interesting that you don't have to have any, like people don't have to know the capital you have or the money. And I, again, think that's kind of what he was going for was a public ledger that you can see every transaction. So there isn't, I mean, sure, there could be money laundering and, but there's money laundering with cash. There's money laundering with every asset and having a public ledger where if you really want to dive into it and see the transactions, you can. And that was so cool to me. So, you know, I, I couldn't agree more with everything you're saying. And, and you know, Blaine, I think, uh, as you well know, I have some pretty controversial opinions about most things. So I, I hope you're okay with me saying some stuff on this episode. Absolutely. Okay. Because, <laughs> you know, one of the things that I've come to recognize is like, philosophically, when I first came across Bitcoin and, and, you know, I had friends who were, you know, uh, took the time to explain it all to me. And like, I, I, I understood it and I started to get a little involved, definitely not nearly, uh, all the way in like you had gone, but I always believed in like the philosophy of it, why it mattered, why it was important for, you know, folks who are the most disadvantaged by the current system. Right. And you talk about things like remittances uh, which we can touch on, but, but point is that, you know, I, I, I appreciated that so much about it. And the more that I have learned about crypto, the more I've gone back to Satoshi's white paper, the more I've learned about the structure of the existing financial system, the more, um, it's, it's miraculous. Like, I don't know how to else to put it. It's, 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 a, it's literally a miracle what was written and the, and not just what was written, but then what was actualized and what is actually here. It's like, and it's, and it's why you see these people panicking now. Right. And they're trying to put more controls on it. Right. People like Elizabeth Warren, who is either willful, willfully ignorant of fiscal policy or is much more likely just in the pockets of the people who control the existing economic system, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason, the reason I say all this is, you know, you look at what is the dominant currency today, right? It's the U S dollar. And there's a bit of a culture in the U S right. And it's very intentionally been built this way where the dollar is the best. It'll be the best forever, blah, 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 blah. Right. And that is a very arrogant mentality that comes with us being the global reserve currency 
a phenomenon which, by the way, has never lasted for maybe more than 150 years or so. And look, the trajectory we're going, look at what the BRICS just did, right? Like that is, that in of itself is not a defensible position. But what's even worse is when you start to peel back who controls the Federal Reserve, right? Which is neither federal, meaning it's not owned by the government. They have no reserves. They used to be backed 10% on the dollar by gold, which in and of itself is ridiculous. Then they decided to take that away altogether. So um, not only that, it's like I said, not owned by the government. It is not hold anything in reserves. It is in fact owned by a cartel of private banking families. Always has been since it was created in 1913. This same cartel has been on every side of The equation in terms of printing additional capital, in terms of buying assets from other huge corporations, which they also control, in terms of being on both sides of every military conflict, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when we talk about Bitcoin as freedom, right, um, and people who don't necessarily understand the philosophy of Bitcoin or still haven't gotten there on it can think that that sounds like hyperbole or, or even just nonsense. But I think more so than anything... As the economic conditions worsen and we get closer to another geopolitical conflict, having the ability to avoid a hyperinflationary cycle, to have access to other currencies, to be able, as Blaine said, to uh, transact anonymously, to be able to move large sums out of countries, not because you're a criminal, but because your government is perhaps criminal, right? These things only increase in importance. And one of the other things, and then I'll, I'll get off my soapbox, Blaine, and, and pass the mic back to you. Uh, but one of the other things that I've come to love about crypto is not just when I say Bitcoin is freedom, like I'm not saying just Bitcoin, right? That is obviously the first use case that started the whole movement, but the philosophy, the decentralized nature of crypto, the fact that you can have set numbers, right, to avoid federal reserves from printing infinite amounts of cash so that they erode the wealth of all the individuals, right? All those same principles apply to other cryptocurrencies, right? And so not only does Bitcoin itself decentralize you from the corrupting influence of cartels, but it also opens up the possibility that if people lose conviction in Bitcoin or in Ethereum or or Doge, you have infinite other currencies from which you can choose from, right? So again, it it changes the whole dynamics from the current existing structure where the cartel not only owns the dollar, they own the euro, they own the gold, right? Now you com- completely change the the structure of currency and they can never get that control back. And that's why they're panicking. And so crypto to the moon in summary. No, but I completely agree with, you know, just about everything you said there. I think you're seeing politicians taking a harder stance on crypto right now because of the dollar losing its dominance in the global as a global reserve currency. And I think it's terrifying for these people that have vested interests in the dollar staying as this global cur- reserve currency that, there could be a decentralized currency like Bitcoin that nobody even knows who the founder is, right? No, he's never touched his assets. The ability that that is just terrifying to them. And for me and for you, it's it's amazing. It's just so inspiring. It's so cool to think of that there's this asset out there 
that no central body has control over. And sure, you know, I think some pushback on that would be, well, there's some people who own, like Michael Saylor owns one out of every 500 Bitcoins or something like that. But I think you're always going to have a level of concentration in asset, especially when people are very like, I mean, he was a pretty early mover compared to every other company and other like large player uh, in the industry. I, I, I love that. I think there's still like, there's always going to be that level of concentration or something like that of where wealth is concentrated. But again, that the idea that, you know, you could have Bitcoin and freely transfer it and kind of move it around that you and I could send each other Bitcoin without, you know, having to go through the banks. And that, I think that's terrifying for them. That like, I don't have to wait for Wells Fargo to clear my transaction. I can do it on the Bitcoin network and I can see it on chain. And I always see that part on chain. And while still being anonymous, you know, again, you can still track these movements of it to where it's not like it's just used for by criminals or for money laundering and stuff like that. I thought, you know, it's funny actually on that point and not to get to a topic was one of my securities professors, securities law professors are in uh, law school. His wife was one of the five commissioners of the SEC and he was just absolutely, you know, just for lack of a better word, shitting on Bitcoin and saying, you take Bitcoin, you change it to Ethereum and then your money's laundered. I'm like, really? Like, so you don't even really understand how that works. I said, it's a blockchain. You, I mean, you could bridge your assets from Bitcoin to like Ethereum or have like wrap Bitcoin, but it's not like you just put it in one pocket and boom, it's out on the other. Nobody knows what happens. I was like, so you're, you know, you're married to one of the commissioners of the SEC and you're not even going to do the research to your students. You're just going to tell them it's terrible. And law students and like every student are pretty impressionable. And when you know, a lot of law students are pretty risk averse and probably not interested in crypto assets, you hear that and it's like, yep, it's bad. And then you've got a whole class of kids who potentially could become securities lawyers, work for the SEC that have no understanding of it and just a disdain for it because it's in their mind used by criminals. I thought that was like, oh my, like I got in an argument with them. I was like, I just think that's like, you're doing a huge disservice for these students by just saying it's a criminal enterprise essentially, because it's so much more than that. I, I, think the lack of focus on the ability for developing countries and citizens in those countries, like for what Zimbabwe has that hyperinflationary currency, the ability to take that currency and put it into something that while volatile is a lot more stable than their own currency is just so cool. It again, takes the power away from these governments and really gives it to the people. And I just think that's such a cool concept that, you know, we haven't really seen before in the history of humans. And I, I love that. Well, and you know, it's interesting too, as you talk about the criminality of Bitcoin and everything, and you know, certainly it's fair to point to the fact that, as you said, a lot of people are using it for Silk Road and things like that, right? As initial use cases. But um, look at the criminality in the existing financial system. That's what I was just going to say. I, it's the dollar still used for more criminal activities than probably every other crypto asset combined, right? Like there's more stuff that happens with the dollar, more money laundering, more, you know, just terrible things that happen because of the dollar. So I guess what I disliked about the whole idea of Bitcoin enables criminal like enterprises and stuff is that fact that like someone's like, oh, I'm going to become a criminal now because I have Bitcoin. For a dollar, you could give me a dollar and then no one will ever know where that dollar goes. But if you give me a Bitcoin, you can track that Bitcoin from where it was mined to where it is today. And I think that's a fascinating level of accountability that it provides that you just don't have with the dollar or other traditional currencies. Yeah. 
And could you talk a little bit more about the idea that like you're both anonymous on Bitcoin as an individual, but all your transactions are, you know, locked in amber or whatever it's called. And so when it actually comes to criminality, like in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's probably in the long run going to make it easier to prevent criminals. Do you think that's fair? That's my understanding and viewpoint is while, you know, you could have money in a Bitcoin wallet and it won't be like at your Wells Fargo account where everyone at Wells Fargo knows how much money you have in that account. And it could be like data could be breached, right? And be like, oh, this is Jordan Euclid's Wells Fargo account. For Bitcoin, you could have a wallet, a fresh wallet. And, I'm, you know, there's some blockchain sleuths like uh, there's this guy on Twitter named Zach XBT. And Zach is amazing at reading the Ethereum blockchain. Like he can essentially tell you like where all this money's gone, whose new wallet this is, how they're all interconnected for like thousands and thousands of transactions. But it's still anonymous. You know, it's just a wallet name. It's not necessarily a person's name. So you can see that this wallet might be doing some bad activities and it's all public ledger, um, but it might not be just directly tied to your name. So that's where the anonymity comes in. But again, it's just a public ledger and it's really easy to track these public ledgers. And I think as time goes on, more tools will be made to where it's easier for people who might not be as native to a blockchain to kind of see like, oh, here's where the, the money went from, you know, I paid this wallet, this wallet sent it there or something like that. So it's pretty easy like, for example, when there's like a scam in corporate America, that money can just kind of like disappear and go to a bank that doesn't share any information and it's gone. On a blockchain, you can see where that money's gone and it might go to a centralized exchange where they cash it out. But there's been numerous times where that's happened and the exchanges have, you know, stopped those accounts from being able to take that money, which again, it, it might not be the best idea for centralization versus decentralization. But you still have the ability to kind of see where these assets have gone on the blockchain and trace it, which I think is just so interesting. Yeah, because then you would think theoretically, like, say, because you're still going to like you're still going to have I have to imagine like, you know, AML KYC policies, right? Like, all right, we don't want to make, you know, be accepting any any cryptos from known from known felons or whatever you call it. Yeah. So, like, I would imagine that there's probably a way you as a company, your call, you know, whatever it is, like you could say, Hey, I will not accept any coins that have been attached, you know, since this hash. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I, th I believe that's like my understanding of that's pretty fair to say. Um, but I think that real interesting part of that is it's not like the federal government, right. Can freeze your bank account. They did that in Canada recently, Justin Trudeau. I don't know if you saw that. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think that they like limit access and centralized exchanges, but I'm talking if you have Bitcoin on the ledger, you, it's yeah, your yeah. ledger and you can use that as you want. I mean, you could use a VPN and other things to kind of get around some geo fencing and stuff like that. Um, but it's not like they can take it from your ledger. Like there's just no, it's, that's no way that they can do that, but they can take it from your bank account. And I think that's just like a pretty big distinction between the two of the ability to have self-custody over your assets and be sure that those are your assets, that nobody can touch them. That's really interesting. Because I think with centralized exchanges is where that's actually kind of a bottleneck for the crypto industry right now, is you have places like Coinbase and Binance that are subject to US regulators. 
and they have to comply. And when you have, and like FTX, when you have assets on an exchange and the exchange goes under, you lose those assets. And that's like a pretty big deal. So until, you know, you can transact with cryptocurrency for everyday goods, you're always going to have these on ramps and off ramps that are sort of bottlenecks. But you're seeing even today, like more and more places are accepting cryptocurrency. You know, Solana has like Solana Pay where it's instant transactions and stuff like that, I think is, and that's why I like stable coins as well, because it takes out the volatility, right? Everyone's like, I don't want to buy a coffee for a Bitcoin today and Bitcoin be worth 20%, you know, 100% more and you've kind of lost that on it or it's gone down and the business has lost money that they need to operate. What are stable coins? Yeah, so stable coins are coins that are pegged to a traditional currency, right? So then again, you still have a level of centralized government involved. It's like USDC is a stable coin that's pegged to the US dollar. I'll just say it recently lost its peg and has now gained it. It lost its peg a lot due to the speculation that they had a lot of their money in Silicon Valley Bank. So it kind of is all tied back into the traditional financial system. And, you know, USDT is one that a lot of people you know, aren't exactly fond of either because there's not, they don't have very clear proof of reserves, but that's what USDC has is like Circle is a pretty trusted company in the space. Um, and again, I don't think any are perfect right now. And you've seen a lot of other stable coins like Terra that had the UST that had lost its peg with the idea being it's a crypto asset that's tied to the US dollar or the euro or something like that. That is stable or a lot more stable than something like Bitcoin that could see daily fluctuations of a couple percentage. Like where USDC lost its peg, that was kind of insane, right? Like everyone was talking about it's down 15%. Where like if Bitcoin goes down 15%, people are like, that's Bitcoin. Again, so there's a level of stability attached to it. But even 15%, right? You look at how the broader stock markets have been moving. I mean, they've been crazy for the last year and a half. So that's still pretty impressive. No, yeah. And again, it, it regained that peg pretty quickly. But that took, you know, the Federal Reserve pumping a bunch more into SVB Bank. So it's just like, man, it's so hard to say because when shit actually hits the fan, when things decouple, like the world is in a state of almost like maximum insanity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've actually was, you know, part of a, I've had this crypto or stable coin called Casio. And Casio was a stable coin that had USDC and USDT reserves. Something was wrong with the internal code. It was audited by what I believe to be a third party, but it ended up being the same people that kind of created it. Um, there was this really bad che- like lack of checks and balances. And Casio was half and all of the reserves were taken out of it. Damn. What do you mean when you say audited? So like a an audit, not like a financial audit, um, but an audit through. So, so you produce like a some code, and it's, you just put it out like it's an application, right? A decentralized application or this new coin, and someone would come an audit firm and go through and make sure that there's not vulnerabilities where someone could hack it and kind of take advantage of a lack of security in the code. And there's a lot of really reputable ones in the crypto industry that are just. You know, again, there's going to be human flaws in it, but I was under the impression that this was audited by a third party when in actuality it was audited by someone with a vested interest in it. And then you realize that someone was able to take like, I think it was something like 50 million, or no, it was $150 million of reserves out of it and made the coin completely worthless. And then the hacker was 
and I think in typical crypto Robinhood fashion, everyone with under a hundred thousand dollars got all their money back, and everyone over a hundred thousand dollars got a percentage of it back or something like that. Um, but it, it's, I guess, the idea of the stablecoin is really promising to me. I think right now the practical applications of it aren't as attractive because, like you said, if it's you're still holding United States dollar then on the blockchain, and that doesn't really do too much for you other than the ability that the government can't freeze your USD in that asset class, which I think is the appealing part now, right? That's a really good point. I didn't, I didn't think about that. So tell me about with USDC, it still, I guess, gets just as it's hurt by inflation, right? Exactly. So it's whatever the dollar purchasing power is, is the same purchasing power of USDC. But you're right. Like it still, it still has a lot of the other benefits of crypto. Exactly. And the seamless transactions, I think are really cool. Like if I wanted to send you $10,000 through a bank, it could take a while and there could be some hoops we'd have to jump through and you know there could be fees associated if i want to send you ten thousand dollars on usdc or on solata and usdc but have it by the time you'd have it by the time i'm done with the sentence which i think is just fascinating that's cool is it a uh proof of stake usdc so usdc is like uh on solana it's an spl it's not its own blockchain so if it's on Ethereum, it's like proof of stake now. But if it's on Solana, it's like proof of history or whatever Solana runs off of. So it's dependent on the underlying blockchain. But that meaning that Circle is sort of backing it with USD reserve or like, yeah, actual USD cash reserves. Circle is the issuer of USDC. And there, I believe like a, a bank would be kind of the right way to say it. So you would deposit like $10,000 from your Wells Fargo and you get $10,000 USDC. So wouldn't Circle then still be a trusted third party? It is. And that's sort of the issue is there's some decentralized stable coins, but then you run into the issue of, is it audited? Is there people that, while you might not enjoy the federal government coming in to kind of back it, someone like me who had a lot of their money in USDC loved to see the federal government say like, okay, it's, well, being sure that Silicon Valley Bank and Circle get their money. And like so that it's a level of security. It's kind of a push and pull, right? I'd love it to be fully decentralized. There's no perfect crypto and, you know, people have competing different, you know, priorities. But I think that's, again, why it's amazing that we can have infinite options. Um, you know, it's going to be, to your point, a push and pull process. There's going to be these on ramps and off ramps and cycles and, regulators that come cracking down and uh you know stuff like that but you know in the uh overall trend i mean it's it's just incredibly democratizing it is and it's such a crazy concept to me when you really look at it and just the scope of how currency has been used throughout human history there's always been this sort of like centralized government that could do whatever they wanted right i mean even in the u.s didn't they if i remember correctly like took everyone's gold that wasn't like jewelry and stuff like that when they were moving to a gold reserve back in history and like just the ability that a government that a government could come in and say like we need gold or we need your united states dollars stuff like that is just kind of scary where with again you've got it on your ledger and that's something that i think we haven't really touched on but self-custodying your assets on a ledger or hard wallet is yeah so i think that's a must for anyone that's involved in crypto is having a hard wallet. Do you explain what, yeah, what those terms mean? Yeah, so if you have your capital, say, in your cryptocurrency on Coinbase, right? That's out of like a hot wallet that Coinbase controls. And whether or not you like it, for example, when FTX went under, I had $1,000 on FTX. 
FTX goes under. Now I am somewhat in the bankruptcy proceeding, hoping that they have enough capital to kind of pay me back. Whereas the other capital I had or other crypto assets was on my ledger, which is a hard wallet that's only controlled by me. And it's essentially think of it as like a USB drive that I have to put in my seed phrase and my pin before it can ever have the assets leave it. Um, then you're self-custodying those assets and it's up to you. And you know, that's some of those people you hear those like kind of horror stories where they lost their Bitcoin on their hard drive and it was just gone forever. And as while that does stink, it adds a level of responsibility to people. That's what terrifies me. Just given my disorganization and uh, it's just, it's just uh, not a good mix. It's a terrifying concept. I think like the first time I ever had any real money on a ledger, um, to be honest, it was what I think was like 0.2 Bitcoin. I lost for four years. I couldn't find it. I ended up finding it and it was like unbelievable. And then I've, you know, started to have a little bit more of a organized process of where I have the safe that I put it in all the time and that I always keep it there. I have multiple backup copies of my seed phrase. So something that Ledger does, Ledger's a company that sells these hard wallets, is if you lose the physical yeah. got mine, still gotta set it up. Thanks for the recommendation. So if you lose that ledger, the physical ledger, but you have your seed phrase, you can buy a new ledger and put that seed phrase in and it repopulates with your assets. So that's another thing is your seed phrase. That's really cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. So your seed phrase is just as important, if not more important, definitely more important than the physical ledger itself. So like if you were to lose your ledger and I found it, I wouldn't be able to access it because I probably, I wouldn't have the seed phrase and I wouldn't have the you know, whatever is a six or eight digit pin that you would create because that you ledger and, gives you And then when options. I got my new ledger, the assets would all transfer onto that anyway, yep. right? So even if, so by that time, if you got into it with the seed phrase somehow, doesn't matter. Yep, exactly. Because you ideally, right, you'd have it, you'd, you'd probably get like two ledgers and have one to download your new one. Like that is completely unassociated to the lost seed phrase or anything like that. And then you'd import your old one with the seed phrase and transfer your assets over. Because again, like anyone who has your seed phrase to a wallet uh, has control of your assets. So that's why people say like- So I should not keep my seed phrase in the same place as my wallet is what you're talking about. Yeah, and you shouldn't take a picture of it, right? And like save it on your phone or save it to your iCloud or something like that. Because if you have it on iCloud and iCloud gets hacked- and that hacker sees your seed phrase, they have access to your assets now. Self-custody is a scary thing. No, it's really smart though. I, I get it. That's that's really smart. So then do you uh, do you just have yours memorized, your seed phrase? I don't. I think a lot of people do. I'm too worried that, you know, if I forgot something like that, I wouldn't have access to it. I keep my seed phrase in like one safe and I keep my ledger in another area. And that way, again, you know, so even if someone plucked up my ledger right now, they just wouldn't even be able to access it because I've got uh, eight digit code that they have to enter before they can even, you know, see anything other than it just says enter your code. Um, so it's it's a great solution to um, centralized exchanges and stuff. And I really moved all of my assets over after that FTX crash because it was I, I was under the impression you know that FTX was super safe and that it was a centralized exchange that had all these checks and balances. You know, it's one of a really large company. And then you see like, oh, there's people who are not great people in this world and will exploit this lack, this lack of checks and balances. And that's why I think self-custody really comes into, you write your own destiny with that and it's your own assets. And it's an empowering thing to think that like only I have access to my assets. 
nobody else in the world does. And I can get, yeah, I can, I can, there's free flow of, you know, movement of, of your person, of being able to, even if you don't have your ledger, you can just get a new one. Like that's, that's really cool. So you brought up FTX and um, I've got some strong opinions about that situation. Um, but, you know, before, before that would love to just, would you explain what is FTX and what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. So FTX was a centralized exchange where it's essentially an on-ramp and on-ramp, on-ramp and off-ramp for crypto assets where you could hook up your Wells Fargo account and say, you know, I'm going to transfer $500 from Wells Fargo to my FTX account. And then I could buy crypto assets from and I could trade on the platform. I could then use it to, you know, send it to my ledger myself. Because again, there's really the only way to get money into the crypto ecosystem right now is through these centralized exchanges. Like you can't just put $500 and maybe like the Bitcoin ATMs are a little bit of a differentiation on that where you can kind of go with a credit card and go to an ATM and a Bitcoin um, that way. But for the mass majority of people, right, you've got to use these centralized exchanges. And FTX was highly revered in the crypto community. Um, you know, people were people used it because of the founder. They thought Sam was this super altruistic guy. He always said he was, right? Like he was he wasn't a billionaire because he wanted to be a billionaire. He was a billionaire because he wanted to use all this money to help the world and change it. And people in the crypto industry really resonated with that. You know, it kind of goes back to what I believe are the core crypto values of kind of getting away from the traditional financial system, giving these people a chance. And really, again, he was a super smart guy or everyone believed him to be. And he was what looked like to be a really good trader. And people respected that and said, you know, I'm going to use his exchange. He seems really smart. He went to like, MIT. Uh, he had all this great background. He worked at Jane Street and he created his own exchange and it gained so much popularity. Uh, it got really big and people were like just infatuated with this guy. And I, I was someone who was just so interested. So I was like, wow, that he's 28 years old. He's worth like $10 billion or something like that. He drives a Corolla. You know what I mean? Like he's just so different from who I probably would be if I had $10 billion at 28. Like he seems so selfless. And I was like, why? Why wouldn't I have my assets on an exchange with someone like this that, you know, seems to be such a good person uh, in a world where that isn't really always the case? And uh, I think that was just kind of the opposite of what really happened. He had his own trading firm called Alameda Trading, and he really just took off all of the safety checks and kind of valves that are expected and actually like legally needed in this industry and was using consumer or customer funds to backstop Alameda to where like they weren't even having like stop losses or liquidations at all. They were just longing assets as much as they wanted. And it turned out to be, you know, like billion of dollars deficit. And I think it all just kind of came crumbling down when the price of Bitcoin started to crash and their reserves were really low and people started to pull cash out. And it was sort of like a bank run, right? Like the, all this cash is gone. And um, it was just, oh my God, that was the effect it had on the ecosystem was unbelievable. Solana was a token that he was such a supporter of. I mean, he had a famous tweet that's now infamous where he was talking to another really big trader on Twitter. And the guy was saying, the Solana $2 is overvalued. Like it's, there's shouldn't be this high. Like it should be made large dollars. And Sam said, sell me all of your Solana at $3 and fuck off. So a 50% premium to the price he was trading. And then Solana went from $2 to 260 bucks. And people are like, he's a genius, right? Like the conviction he had, the 
foresight to just say like you know sell it all to me right now and just fuck off but you know what though like here's the thing like and sorry to cut you off but you know as as i think about that fucking dick dude like he is he's an asshole honestly it's called what it is he's a criminal like how many tweets has that guy had over the last 10 years right like and you pick the obviously you pick the one that was right but it's selection bias right absolutely and up until that point he had you know at least publicly an amazing track record of wins. Yeah. He had started this. Fair enough. This fair ex- enough. So it wasn't just like a yeah, one time thing. He had thing. started this exchange and like, you know, everything in this Solana ecosystem that he was touching was like turning to gold. Well, but I mean, that's the best criminals, right? They're smart and they just have no moral ethic. Well, and now when you look at it, you realize that it wasn't really just because these assets deserve to be at that price or whatever, but he was using these assets as collateral and then he was using consumer funds to buy them to make sure that he had more collateral. So like if you, I think even on FTX balance sheet today, they had something like it's like $500 million of this token called maps. And like the circulating like value or trading volume of it was like 500 grand, but he was getting loans on that $500 million. So it's like, yes, he was a definitely a terrible actor, a criminal, but I think there's a lot of complacency. Like who would ever give out a loan on an asset like that, that has no circulating supply. Like it has this really high, fully diluted value of $10 billion and he's got 5 billion of it, but the circulating supply was all like 5 million and the daily trading volume was five. Like why were people giving him loans? Do you have any thoughts? there? I think again, it's just sort of the bias of, well, they were giving him a loan. They probably had assets in the ecosystem that are doing really well. He had to that point had never made any mistakes and it was just kind of like you know he's the golden child if you don't mind i want to i want to hop in with like some thoughts around what was that what was going on behind the scenes there right because you know you talk about how it crashed and that obviously caused a lot of um ripples through the crypto industry right and um all that but at the same time, that's what currencies should do when they're fraudulent and they're Ponzi schemes and they don't, you know, they're, they're not, they're not providing the value that they're supposed to be. And so I, I actually view that as like a huge proof of the value of crypto, right? Cause you see the Bitcoin and Ethereum. Yeah. Like they took their hits, Solana took its hits, but you know, they continue to chug along because their underlying use case is still the same. And, you know, as I've, as I've been learning more about, the corruption in the traditional economy. I'm reading Whitney Webb's book right now called One Nation Under Blackmail. Have you heard of this? So check it out. Um, She's just a killer investigative journalist. And it basically ties back the history of the um, entanglement between organized crime, the intelligence agencies, and money laundering through the traditional banking system. And yeah, exactly. And like using all these different offshore accounts and Jeffrey Epstein's all tied into it, of course, you know, so it gets, it gets really, really deep. But anyway, point is when I look at what happened to uh, Sam Bankman Friedman or has Sam Bankman Fried, is that how you say it? Yeah. Yeah. When I look at what happened to Sam Bankman Fried and who the early backers were to me, what it looks like is he was a criminal from the get-go. He, his parents were tied in somehow with the World Economic Forum and whoever their you know, high financier buddies of the day are. 
those guys came together to prop up FTX to make it look legitimate. That convinced investors, like, was it like Sequoia, right? And I think it was like a lot of big VC funds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like, I think that kind of artificial momentum convinced a lot of these big VCs to throw money at them because good deals go fast and they don't have time to do real diligence. Um, and then what it was being used for was to launder money from Ukrainian aid back into the pockets of our politicians. Like there's a reason Sam Bankman freed was the what second largest donor to the democratic party and one of the largest to the Republicans. Yeah. I, and I was just going to point on that. I actually, I actually, I actually think, uh, you know, sort of if I put on my tin foil hat for lack of a better term, you're on the right place for that, my friend. <laughs> I could see a lot of the backing being, you know, if we, when he started FTX, crypto was having a lot of um, momentum. And I think if politicians in the World Economic Forum saw that momentum, what better way to try and halt an industry by having one of the largest players be a corrupt criminal? Right? Well, I mean, people to this day, Bitcoin to scam, Bitcoin to scam. And then it goes, oh my God, the second largest exchange or something like that lost $8 billion of customer funds. It's all a scam. And like, it, it's really hard for someone who's not interested in it or might not be versed in the subject to see past that, especially when you have politicians like Elizabeth Warren who have such a platform and a stage that, like you said, are either willfully ignorant or very, you know, in the know and are doing things purposely. Uh, so it's just, I think there's all those elements and Sam's parents are Stanford law professors who have worked with um, Gary Gensler, who had worked with Carolyn Ellison's dad, who ran Alameda. And I mean, it just was this unbelievable web that is really hard to deny some level of involvement between them and at higher powers, because I, I mean, you can't. I, I mean, maybe you could, and it's just all a coincidence, but man, there's so many things that add up um, and kind of point to those conclusions, in my opinion. Yep. No, I totally agree, man. And you also talk about, you know, Elizabeth Warren having her platform. You said something else about how, oh yeah, how Sam had been like, you know, presented by the media as this super altruistic guy, blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, putting my tinfoil hat back on as well. You look at the entanglement between organized crime, human trafficking, and the corporations that control all of the media, right? Like the entanglement of them all is so insane, but it's just being able to control the narrative and what is presented to the version of reality, right? That is presented to the American public is such a powerful tool. I mean, it's there's a reason why propaganda was so instrumental in the Nazis' ability to dominate tyranny, Absolutely. And I think it's something that goes back to the kind of the public uh, ledger aspect of the blockchain, right? It's really hard to kind of do some of these deals where you could pay people that are higher up in governments and line these people's pockets if you can go on the Bitcoin blockchain or Ethereum and kind of see it. But for cash, it's pretty easy to do. And if the entire world is against Bitcoin, then it's easier to continue your motives. But if the dollar loses its power, and you can't really use this currency to kind of pay people anymore. They have to use a public ledger. Man, it's a lot harder to kind of bribe politicians, again, for lack of a better term, with something that's public ledger than something that, like gold or cash that can move or disappear and burn in a fire or something like that. I mean, it's crazy to think about. It's crazy, man. It's really revolutionary. 
I think it is. And I think at times again, like even now, where you have the, you know, potential bank failures, hyperinflation, the dollar's losing its dominance, it goes back to why Satoshi created Bitcoin. And it's, you know, the older I get, the more compelling it is to have this sort of asset that is unencumbered by political organizations and potentially corrupt centralized groups. And I, I think it's such a, I mean, it w- if you were in their shoes, it'd be terrifying, right? That there's some random internet, you know, magic internet money that could just completely destroy this traditional financial system that has so much power. Sorry, Mr. Rothschild. It's going away. <laughs> yeah, it's a fascinating topic. It is, man. So let's talk about NFTs. Yeah. So, you know, NFTs are, again, it's just another crypto asset If to kind of distill things down to the very basics. Uh, a lot of times NFTs will be JPEGs or other images inscribed on the blockchain. And they're non-fungible tokens. So with Bitcoin, it's a fungible token, right? Every Bitcoin has the same attributes, the same value, the same kind of ability to be transacted where non-fungible tokens have, they're all different, right? So for NFT collection of 10,000 NFTs, each one might be valued differently because of the attributes they have or something like that. And kind of the community decides those, but it's it's another asset class. Um, And I find it very interesting because it adds a level of community and social involvement that I don't think Bitcoin or some of these other just coins have, right? So, you know, there's people like, um, I don't, shoot, I don't have it with, but there's like one of the projects I'm involved in is like, they're called Utes and they're on um, Polygon or Matic. And right now they're in NFT NYC um, up in New York City. And there's like this massive community where they're like going around, they've got parties at all these hotels, they've got all these events going on. And while Bitcoin has those events, you know, it seems to be that people of, my generation and maybe a little bit younger kind of connect to these like digital avatars for lack of a better term that, you know, kind of represent who you are. You can go buy one that like, I like to wear hoodies, right? So I could buy an NFT where the character or whatever, the animal, the person, whatever the image is of that wears hoodies and that resonates with me more than one that might not. And I think that's such an interesting aspect of people. Then you see place value. Like some of these NFTs can sell for 20 times what the quote-unquote floor or the cheapest NFTs sell for, when in reality, they are all just one non-fungible token of the same project. And I think that's just a pretty interesting, you know, it's kind of like a baseball card where like it's the same pack of tops cards, but one might be Michael Jordan rookie card. And that's worth way more than the random Charles Barkley card from, you know, his fifth year in the NBA or something like that. So it's like a digital collectible. It's cool, man. It's like, it's again, it's such a um, game changer from fungible cryptocurrencies as well that like it's, it's, there's just so many different opportunities to take it. It just like it, it, I think it's going to empower people to figure out how to create, how to monetize and create value of whatever they love to do. I think that's something that really resonated with me, you know, working at Key and seeing how hard it is for some of these companies and founders to raise capital, where, you know, you've got all these rules and regulations where you can't just go raise money on a crowdsource and you can do crowdfunding and stuff like that. But like NFT projects can raise millions of dollars overnight and can start allow these founders to run a, just run with their idea. 
and just really start building something where the traditional financial system provides a, a bottleneck where you can't raise that capital as freely. And I found that just super intriguing. I love that. Yeah. And again, it's, you know, it's because the ones who control the wealth and power have never wanted a democratized system. And that's also why you're seeing them start to crack down and say, oh, these cryptos have to be considered a security, not as a, what's the other, what's a commodity or what's the other? Yeah. Or a currency. Yeah. Could you talk about kind of what that debate is and where things stand currently? Yeah. So, you know, to my understanding, right, a security has got to be in line with all the security laws in the United States where a currency isn't subject to those laws. And there's a lot less regulation just around currencies themselves. And, you know, what's interesting is we use the Howey test, right? It's a test to determine whether or not something's security that was developed, I think, you know, Howey, you said? Yeah, so H-O-W-E-Y is the test to determine whether or not an asset or something is a security. And it stemmed from Howey in the Hills in Florida, which is kind of not super close, but we'd always pass it going back from University of Florida to, to Vero Beach. And it was about orange groves from the 1900s. So using a test based on that to determine whether a crypto asset in 2023 is a security. And it just, I think, really highlights either the, the willful ignorance again of politicians today to realize the differences in those or just the idea of, well, we can just kind of you know, shove it into this bucket of it's a security. And like, you're really looking at an outdated test that I, I think it's actually to the detriment of consumers, right? You're, you're not actually regulating it in a way that benefits consumers at all. The idea being, right, we don't want consumers to get, uh, you know, into a Ponzi scheme or lose their money or be defrauded. So we're going to say it's a security and apply these draconian security laws. Which is just, it's just fascinating to think that, you know, that some of the smartest people in our society believe that. Um, yes. Well, and it's so frustrating because then it just gets back to that continued theme of overreach of government that for them to say like, we can, we know better than you what you should be doing with your capital, right? Like it's, it's like the same thing that happened with Robin Hood and why like people were freaking out about Wall Street bets. It's like, you know, why... Why shouldn't the individual consumers be able to move markets as much as the hedge fund traders? Like, that's crazy. That's just a, we could probably do like a whole nother podcast on that. But I think it's just uh, the backlash for Robin Hood and that Wall Street bets because the little man had the power for once instead of the big players. I just, it's comical when you just zoom out and look at it. Yeah. And you know what they were doing? And I don't remember the specifics of the, the GameStop thing, but if I, if I remember correctly, all they were doing is they were saying, you know, these, these short sellers have fucked themselves. Screw these guys. Like let's, let's take them down. And like, to your point, it's like, Oh shit, they don't like when that happens. Yeah. Right. It's completely fine for large head fund, large hedge funds to be the short sellers and make a bunch of money, but it's not okay for retail to notice a trend and exploit that trend uh, and make, you know, essentially take the money from the hedge funds. I, I think that is, it's your classic Robin Hood story. And I think that's just such a intriguing thing. And I think crypto has an element of that. And it's, um, you know, it just, it terrifies the powers that be that you can't, that they can't, they don't know how to control it, right? Because if you use securities laws, Bitcoin isn't really security. But man, they would love to say it is security. And 
slap regulations on it and not let people buy it freely or transact with it freely because they'd love to control it. Um, and again, it's just security laws that we have in place today just don't really make any sense, in my opinion, for uh, crypto assets. They're just so far removed from it. And is there bad actors in this space? Absolutely. But there's bad actors in every space. And to you know take out the good or the potential great benefits of crypto assets because there is bad actors just seems like such a cop-out and such a way to kind of add power and regulation over what I think is a revolutionary financial system. And so, um, you know, let's talk NFT some more. You and I have been working on a project, which I'm super excited about. So um, it's going to be a mini series for, for Entangled. Let's not talk about what the topic is, but um, would love to chat some more about the technicalities of how we're going to pull it off. And so the current thinking is that we'll do, you know, call it a, a series of seven or so episodes. And for each episode, release uh, a series of nfts maybe you know probably probably about seven as well and then also alongside those nfts have physical art that like uh artists that you know um, i'm friends with my sister's probably going to participate and stuff and that's what the digital copy of the nft will be like right um so when we were talking in hawaii we were having a really good debate about whether to do the launch on Matic versus Solano and uh, or Solana with an A. And I think where we, where you were recommending me and I definitely shook out afterwards was Solana. And I'm curious, is that still your recommendation? And and let's start um, with that discussion. Yeah. So, you know, I admittedly am a little biased. Uh, Solana is where I have made all of my friends and really been involved in the community. Can we talk about what is Solana and what is Matic first? Yeah, so both of them are different layer. Well, they're not actually. Solana is a layer one, which means it's its own blockchain. It op- you use Solana to interact, right? It's such a small amount. I mean, it's I think um the average transaction fee on Solana is point zero 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 two cents. So it's it send money to and from. Or essentially, no matter the size of that transaction, it's that amount. Polygon's a layer two, so it operates on Ethereum. But you use, and you'll use Ethereum um, to transact on it. I think you can also use Matic, but to be honest, I I don't think I've ever used Polygon. I have an asset on there that I bridged from Solana to Matic because that was what the team did. Um, they've decided to bridge the assets due because they believe that there was a little bit more liquidity over there due to the fact that you it's denominated in wrapped Ether and there's a lot of liquidity on Ethereum. All right, we're going to have to break down like three things you just said there. <laughs> so I guess the big difference is Solana being a layer one and Polygon being a layer two on top of Ethereum. So a lot of people in the crypto and so, industry... And sorry, Polygon is what again? Polygon's the chain. I think Matic is the currency. Got it. That's helpful. And so... And can, go ahead. Actually, we can skip over that for now. But so Polygon, a lot of your traditional cryptocurrency... Um, aficionados they like it more than solana because solana is an l1 that is built on a, just a different it uses rust it uses a different language than ethereum and some don't believe it's as secure right ethereum's kind of seen as one of the most secure networks if not you know right up there with bitcoin as the most secure um but i really like i think the underlying code 
and the underlying like language it's written in. Like some computing languages are more. So generally, like if you've got more miners that are building on it, you would you would expect it would get to be safer yeah. and all that. So then, um, natu- I mean, just naturally, the larger, more established ones like Bitcoin and Ethereum are always going to have an advantage from that perspective, arguably. Right? Yeah, from the decentralized aspect of it. Um, though I do think, and it might be outdated, but there's this efficiency called the Nakamoto or coefficiency that essentially determines like the amount of, you know, validators, which then validators approve transactions and they have to make sure that they're all in line together. So Solana at one point, this, uh, you know, recently had like the second highest Nakamoto coefficient compared to Bitcoin, which is pretty interesting. Um, Solana has had its fair share of downtime, right? Where the the validators aren't all communicating correctly. There's an update that's been pushed and it's gone down for a few hours, which a lot of your diehard crypto enthusiasts will say is just completely unacceptable. And they they don't won't use it because of that. Ethereum's had its own uh, downtime. Ethereum's actually been hard forked. There's Ethereum, e, e, ETH, yeah. ETC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's all kind of growing pains. Um, but the two chains are very similar in their the fact that Polygon and Solana are going to be very cheap to transact. I think Polygon's two cents, and like I said, Solana's point zero zero two. Um, so I think it's you know the chain of the future, just due to the UX and the UI. Like if you use Solana and you use the typical wallet, which is called a Phantom wallet, it's just so user friendly. It's extremely easy to use. Yeah, and and I think you, that was one of the things that really convinced me of it was when you were just telling me about how how easy it is because that is so important. And I think that's been one of the biggest roadblocks from and both NFT and traditional cryptocurrencies expanding more rapidly. Exactly, and something that's cool is that Phantom Wallet is a native Solana wallet, and this recently they released a beta to be a multi chain. So you can use Phantom now on Polygon and ETH, and it gives you this great user interface. Uh, then again, you know, there's other parts of the decentralized apps or the applications on Solana, I still think have better user interfaces. We are seeing a lot of them go multi-chain to kind of get rid of that friction. It's yeah, super and cool. So then, and then, um, so, just to, so just so I'm thinking about the landscape correctly, Polygon is a tier two that sits on top of Ethereum, which is a tier one. Solana is its own tier one. Yeah, and the reason Polygon is kind of this uh, layer two on ETH is because ETH is so expensive to transact on. And it's like, I think the average- Has that gone down since the hard fork though? So I think it's gone down, but I did so like a quick research uh, before this, you know, podcast and i think i saw the average eth prices for transactions to like five dollars so when you think of like developing countries paying five dollars to transact it's not feasible and that's where polygon and other layer twos come in is they you know go from whatever eth transaction per second is and they bump it up to a couple thousand per second they reduce the fees it really kind of gets rid of the friction but at the same time you're interacting with it two blockchains, which I think adds a level of friction that you want to with Solana. And Solana is actually coming out with this amazing uh, thing called compression NFTs. So if you think, like just for example, if you mint a million NFTs on Solana with compression NFTs, it's going to cost $113. On Ethereum, it would cost $3.36 million to mint those. Yeah. And if you go further, a billion NFTs on Solana is $10,700. 
it'll be $33 billion on Ethereum or $32.8 million on Polygon. And that's the gas fee? Is that what that's yeah, called? Yeah, exactly. The the fee to transact, right? The transaction. What, what are you actually paying for? I've never really understood that. You're paying, at least my understanding, is for the validators and the people that are, you know, essentially running this blockchain. Yeah. They're using power and computing power and devoting their, you know, processing power to that. And this is a reward for those people that are running those validators. So like on Bitcoin, like the miners kind of run that and ETH has, I think, moved to a proof of stake, but that's kind of the fees to transact um, on the blockchain. And, you know, what with Solana, I think half of the fee might get like burned to kind of reduce the amount of circulating supply. Um, And I think similar on Polygon. Why is Solana able to do it so much more cheaply? So the, from my basic understanding of it is the language it was coded on rust and just kind of the infrastructure built has allowed it to do like so to kind of take a step back you know right now i think solana could do something like sixty thousand transactions per second where eth can't do nearly that much um so i think that's kind of the ability is its ability to do all these transactions per second it's computing language that it's built on just the infrastructure is a lot more user-friendly and built for i believe the future where you could like an idea of compression nfts right is nfts aren't going to be used as just digital collectibles i think i mentioned this to you before with ai could could you talk about what are compression nfts i haven't heard that term before so honestly it's i don't even think it's out on solana yet it's currently being developed but it's just the ability to mint uh, NFTs, like I said, like a billion NFTs for $10,000 instead of... So just like just like mass producing NFTs. Mass basically. producing, right? Uh-huh, for uh-huh. what I think could be the future of NFTs won't just be digital collectibles, but actually ways to verify news and other media content because it's on the blockchain and it'll be there forever, right? So if, so if talk, you say talk, like... Talk to me more about that. Yeah, so it's something I recently had been talking to with some of my friends is as AI and, you know, for again, lack of a better term, fake news becomes more prevalent and people are getting duped by this stuff more and more. If you could have the original news source, uh, an original video, right? So you've seen like these fake videos or AI generated images of Trump in handcuffs or the Pope in a puffer jacket. If you could have these yeah, original scary, images uh, minted on the blockchain then you have a verifiable source of what is real and what is. And you would That's say cool. that this was minted on, you know, April 13th at 1 p.m. And then after that image came out, these were the edited images of it, right? Like the Photoshopped images and stuff like that. So the, I think the technology of NFTs and the ability to, again, have media sources on the blockchain and verify who they came from when they came out is super cool decentralization for the win it's a fascinating thing and solana that's another knock right is that it's not necessarily super decentralized i think if you were to apply the how it's it would definitely fall within the security on that definition uh because there's so the howie test i think it's a four-pronged test that no no sorry uh, not the howie uh, test the um why is solana considered centralized so there's a Solana Labs and there's a CEO of Solana Labs and everything. So there's a centralized kind of body that is pushing out these updates. And it's not centralized in the fact that, you know, they control your assets on the blockchain, but 
that's when some of the downtime happened. It's like they'll say, we're going to push out a new update for the validators. And until over whatever 70, 67% of validators are updated to it, it's kind of at an impasse. And you still still have this level of centralization that I think you don't have with Bitcoin. Right, there's nobody. Solana saying this Inc. Is what you said is the name of uh, Solana this. Labs. Do they? Um, how much uh, ownership of the asset do they have? So they were the ones that created the blockchain and the asset itself. So I'm not sure their holdings specifically, but I would imagine it would be you know like a massive amount, right? They were the ones that you think over fifty percent. You know, I don't. I don't know. Um, but what's interesting is I it doesn't really matter. That, that would scare me honestly more than them controlling the uh, and like is the is the code all open sourced? That's a great question. I I think Solana's code is open source. I think a lot of the apps on Solana are open source as well. I would have to imagine it what would be. Yeah, right? I'd be surprised yeah. if uh, it would have caught as much traction as it had if it did. Maybe maybe not. But I mean, because to me, like if you can diversify. The code one, I think that's very important for sure. And then also the asset control, that's a then I'm less concerned them having, you know, the um, I guess the dev dev control or whatever you want to call it. Um, because I do think, especially in the early days, like you talk about, right? There's no perfect way to do this. Um, everyone's just kind of trying to figure it out. And so there certainly are elements to or benefits rather to having at least like that, that centralized entity uh, building the thing. Yeah. So what's interesting is, you know, even if they own, you know, say 70% of all Solana, it doesn't mean that they own 70% of the validators that are approving the transactions on the blockchain. And that's the important part. And that's where that Nakamoto coefficient seat comes in. So it's could be detrimental to the price of the underlying asset. But it doesn't mean just, you know, you can't just buy all the Solana on the open market and say, I now control the blockchain. You control the price of that asset just due to, you know, supply and demand and you could create sell pressure. But you're not able to say, you know, Blaine's assets are no longer this, they're this. You don't have that ability at all. You don't have the ability to force transactions through or anything like that. You just have the ability to kind of control or manipulate price to a degree. And again, that's, you know, but not, isn't that I, in a way the same thing, right? Well, no, because the people, the validators are the ones that are validating the transactions. So, no, I know, but I'm just, I, I, no, I get your point. I mean, certainly it's better to have the validators independent, but if even still, if you can control the price and create artificial, you know, fluctuations and force people to panic and buy at a, at a discount, you know, um, Arguably, it's it's just as effective of controlling, you know, the the dev itself too, or the validation rather. I, I think I pushed back a little there because you don't need Solana, right? Like you, I think one Solana could last you like years, right? So you don't need to have this massive amount of soul to use the network at all. You just need, like, as it's point zero zero two dollars at twenty four dollars, right? Or point yeah zero zero two to get um, one transaction through. So you really don't need to buy Solana and could still use the blockchain with other assets on the Solana blockchain like USDC, USDT, or other you know altcoins on the Solana ecosystem. So you're ecosystem. saying that just because the price was volatile for a minute, you know, you, the, the assets on top of it would still retain their value? 
Yeah, everything else still retains its. So USDC is still one dollar, no matter if Sol is two dollars or five thousand dollars, because it's just the it's the currency used to make transactions on the blockchain, but it's not the currency or what is used to determine what is happening on the blockchain, right? Like that's the validators. Wow, interesting. That's crazy, man. I mean, you know, someone who spends a lot of their free time doing this, it's still just so complex. Um, again, there's like a level of technicality that's just always going to be hard for me to understand because I don't code and I don't run a validator. I don't really understand that, but it's uh, it's still fascinating to me to see like the mass. Like I've got a friend who runs one of the larger validators on Solana. And, you know, it's, I think right now it's like producing a lot of free income for him. But he's also like, you know, validating all of these transactions and he's one of thousands, if not more. And I think that's a really cool idea that, you know, even when the Solana CEO of Solana Labs wants a new update through, if the validators aren't doing it, he doesn't really have any say. You can't force the validators to update. There's no way for him to say, you've got to change this. You've got to do that. It's up to them to want to do it. That's cool, man. Does it ever feel overwhelming because it's just developing so fast? Oh, yeah. I, that, I think that was a big thing for me when I was in college. There's just probably the first time I ever felt anxiety was like, you're all these things are happening at once. You're trying to chase every coin. You're trying to see every pump. And I mean, it's, you know, if you're five minutes late, you could just lose all the upside. And it's crazy to think about that. Like there is... There's a coin I got involved in um, last year that one of my friends, it just like just released and one of my friends got it three minutes before me. And I bought it three times the price he bought it at in three minutes. See, it's just like, it's so fast where, you know, FOMO, like fear of missing out comes into play. I think more in crypto assets, more than like anything else in the world that I've been exposed to because you're like, yeah, in an instant, it could change from a dollar to a hundred dollars. And from a hundred dollars, it could crash to, and those are a lot of your other coins, not like Solana, right? Or these ones that have large market caps. That's sort of your like super volatile altcoins that, you know, might have like a million dollar market cap when they come out or something lower than that, that can just be manipulated so quickly. But even NFTs, I mean, there's this project called OK Bears that I, I minted it and I minted it for two soul. By the end, of, and that was $200 at the time. Within six hours, it was at 25 soul, which was, you know, $2,500. If you were not here, I think that's the one you told me to buy and I didn't. (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. (laughs) It's like, damn it. But you know what I mean? Just this, it's quick where you feel like, oh my God, I've missed out on all this upside, or you just get into it if there's so much more upside and it moves so quickly. Um, And that's why I think really, you know, kind of finding, and that's what I think is cool about NFTs is you can find communities that kind of will help keep you in check and people that it's a very lonely game if you're doing crypto alone in your own bubble. You can just fall victim to so many things where, again, that's what I think is cool about crypto is I've got friends all over the world that I would have never met if it wasn't for these yeah. crypto assets that we're all interested in. Is it uh, Twitter, Discord? Like, how do you know, that, how do you communicate with them all? Twitter and Discord. Um, a lot of people use Telegram as well. You know, I, just have it solana has used a lot more discord i think like eth uses a lot of telegram and so does like matic but so discord and twitter are just like the two main information sources for me um because i think it's even better like you'll see some of these twitter accounts will like post uh articles and news sources before your traditional 
media sources or even some of your uh, crypto news sources that are like that's why they're so threatened by free like speech man it's crazy and that's I think Twitter is a very interesting case study in that as well the freedom of information and the speed at which it flows on that app is both it's dangerous the world, and man. oh I mean no doubt it, it's super interesting but it could be very dangerous as well you know someone could say like FUD is this term it's fear uncertainty and doubt and some if a big account tweets something like XYZ is happening right like oh uh, um, like so, you just again. I think goes into the ability to where I think NFTs could come into the long run to kind of be sources of verification and truth, where you kind of have to have an ability to see what is and isn't uh, realistic or true. Yeah. yeah. Wow, crazy man, it's crazy. Um, so now talking back to um the Solana Matic debate. And you mentioned, you know, Discord being really user and user friendly as well. And does that also integrate with the Phantom app or no? So what's really interesting is that there's this uh, one company, at least on Solana, called Matricia Labs. And Matricia has created Discord tools to where you will hook up your Phantom wallet or whatever wallet you're using on Solana. There's a handful, Phantom being the largest. And it'll say like, you've got this nft right you've got um an okay there and that allows you access to the gated channels on discord to where you need an okay bear to get access to so there is a level of integration but it's actually through a third party currently called matricia labs um, and so and would, would the use case for cool. that to be like if you want to have like a private event or something like that so if you want to create a community that's a gated community right that isn't just open to anyone but you wanted to have the ability, right? So a lot of these NFT communities will have an open channel where anyone can join, right? 50,000 members, but then a gated channel for their 5,000 holders of their 8,000 NFTs. So that you get, you know, a level of value attached to that, a real community where it can't just be like a bot that comes in and starts sending stuff. And Discord has, you know, things to make sure bots aren't involved or the, uh, stuff like that. So it's, it's a really interesting. And seeing that evolve, I mean, Matricia, I think, came out like two years ago. Uh, like, I remember, I think I minted one of their first NFTs. And at first, it was just kind of like an art project. And it'll be really new. And then the need came up for a uh, gated Discord access. And one of the team members like decided they could do that. And it, you know, Discord allows for a lot of different uh, developers to kind of add their own spin and have plugins to it. And it's been really cool to see that all. Um, it, kind of develop and it's the same thing you can go on discord and have a plug-in to where it'll have all the assets prices right like bitcoin price and then you can type does it in almost like operate like a internet browser yeah it kind of does it's it's like a browser in of itself and you know you'll have like on the left hand side a bunch of different channels and then on the right will be like more of the channel specific like if you're in the okay bears discord you'll have this one channel um and it'll be like you know for nft alpha or something like that or crypt like uh, crypto coins alpha or fan art and all these different things and you'll see who are in these channels and posting it and it's a it's a really interesting platform um, and it connects even to like xbox and stuff like that yeah yeah and there was another stat that you pulled about um you know why you like solana over matic and i can't remember what it was but it was something about like number of like active users is either active users or NFT transactions, something like that? 
Oh, like the daily uh, NFT volume. I think that like was theory. it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so like Ethereum still has the lion's share of NFT volume, but on certain, like, you know, I think the last I looked at was Solana's the second highest and it goes anywhere on a daily volume from 25 to 50% of the volume. Where on Matic and Polygon, uh, just kind of using those interchangeably, there's a lot less volume. Like I think on Solana, the daily volume is something like 147,000 soul was uh, like what I looked at last week. Why which I, is there still so much on ETH if the fees are so high? My opinion is the legacy users that got into Ethereum very early have so much capital and they do not care to take it off of ch- off the chain, right? Like it's not, it's not an easy thing to take assets from one chain to another. They've, you know, Jump has created a wormhole and some of them are good but you could wait 20 minutes and for someone who's only used one chain so much that's and you're talking about a lot of money it's a pretty again it's not like a bank where if you mess something up you can get it back right you said it's the wrong address it's gone forever um and i think that really scares people so ethereum that makes has, sense i mean it scares me of, right i told like yeah. that's half the reason why i haven't set this up because i'm like nervous i'm gonna just fucking lose it all in transition yeah it's terrifying and ethereum's like the real like you know the second chain after bitcoin and some of those people that got in years ago have hundreds of millions of dollars and nfts are like you'll see sales that are million dollar sales and like i just saw one sales like a 500 600 dollar sale and what is you know a terrible capital market that someone's buying a jpeg for six hundred thousand dollars is crazy we're on solana like the highest sale recently i you know, would probably be less than $100,000, maybe less even than $50,000. That all makes sense. You've sold me on Solana. Boom. Yeah, I'm a big fan of it. I I think the community on Solana is the most compelling part to me. I think uh, Matic might have more liquidity at times, but, you know, I've seen people back projects because they like the person doing it on Solana and really made them a success. And I just find that, you know, you're voting with your wallet. That's fire. And I love that. I love the ability to kind of support. And it's a, such a supportive ecosystem. All right. So how do we drop? So I'm thinking, right, so we'll have, we'll record the interviews. Then we'll have the artists make the physical art of them. We make a digital file of the art. And that's what the the digital NFT will be, obviously. How do I actually drop that to listeners? Yeah, so you would either airdrop it to them, right? You'd have to know their Solana wallet address, or you would use a marketplace like Exchange Art or Boombox Marketplace and have them go to mint it from there. So that's the two that I would say for more boutique projects are Exchange Art and Boombox Marketplace. Um, Boombox now, is run by. Real quick, real quick, before we get into that, the the thing you said before that, right, of just dropping it to their their wallet. I mean, I feel like, I don't know. It's hard to say because, well, and and this is what I want to get your perspective on, but I almost feel like I don't need to overcomplicate it. Right. Like I could just say, Hey, if you want to be a part of these drops, send me your emails and you know, the ones that get picked, like then you just, then you just transact directly because, and that's part of the reason why I don't want to do a huge number per episode. Right. Like I want to just, do it on a smaller scale and just, and just, um, 
you know, figure out some of the kinks, see, see how, you know, see how, whatever, whatever. But, um, so I guess my question is why, why do I need to even use like an exchange and like do the whole minting process? Cause I've, I've been a part of some mints in the past and like, it was not a good process. I hated it. I didn't get yeah. my lost money on gas. I was like, this sucks. So that was on Ethereum where you can lose money on gas and not get the NFT, uh, where on Solana. If your transaction fails, you know, it might be what the 0. 0.002 cents or something like that that you're losing. You're not losing. Like I've had some friends that they go in a hyped mint on Ethereum. They could lose $500 because their mint didn't go through and they didn't have pay enough gas priority. So the reason you do a mint and do one of these exchanges is if you're trying to generate a level of revenue from it, the airdrop is going to be completely free to that uh user right so if you just want to you just do one-off transactions though to say hey here's the set price you won you know you you could but you're going to see that crypto people aren't going to really want to pay right so you the reason you use an exchange is so that someone like they admit it on there and they know that they're getting that nft where uh, the other thing right would be they'd send you money and you'd send them the nft which is a level of trust that a lot of crypto that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. So, so that, so you need it to be like the, the one for one to, okay. I I buy that. Um, so then, okay. So then the two you talked about, say those again, the exchanges exchange art and boombox marketplace. So boombox is really kind of geared more toward audio NFTs that still might have a digital, like, you know, just a JPEG as well. But we'll have like a song or, you know, a real audio file attached to it. So that's pretty interesting. Um, I'm friendly with the founders there. And then exchange art is your more like what we call one of one artists. So people who will create like a one thing of art instead of a 10,000 NFT collection. And people go on there and they can either bid on it or you can have it be an addition. You say like you said seven. So the first seven people that get on exchange art and mint it are the seven people that get that. And when you say get on, what do you mean by that? So like you just, you go on to exchangeart.com. It goes up and it says Jordan Euclid is entangled uh, podcast NFT mint. And they'll read about it, you know, have a little description. They go, oh, that's interesting. I'll pay, you know, the $25 in Solana to buy that. They press mint, they get it. And, you know, it might not be someone who's ever heard of you before or something like that. So that's why airdrops kind of come into play where, you know, if it's certain people you want to ensure get it, you would do that. Yeah. Yeah. because again, and I might end up on, doing like a mix, right? Like, so because like, I want to do like give some out for free as like an incentive for people to like get, sign up and get involved. So that's something a lot of projects will do is like you'll mint an NFT or you hold an NFT, and then they'll airdrop their holders all these NFTs. So they'll be like, you know, if you hold Entangled Podcast One, I'm airdropping all these seven holders Entangled Podcast Two for free. So that they're not buying the second one. And that way, you know, you see on the blockchain who owns these and you drop it into the wallet. That's really cool. That's cool. So that's, again, just like it helps to, you know, build the community, increase the value of these NFTs. I was going to, you could do a free mint as well, right? So if you're trying to build a community up, like, so say you wanted to build a community before dropping these seven, you could do a thousand for free on exchange or something like that. And I said, you know, these thousand NFTs going to cost you like, a five ten dollars to mint. That's maybe. cool. Yeah, yeah. I like you that. do it for maybe free. You and do, you maybe do a combo of them, right? Like exactly. Well. 
Yeah, that's really cool. So with Solana, is it easy to build in the drops where the, uh, when you have, well, first off when the, with the initial sale and then with all subsequent sales, is it possible to build into the, um, into the NFTs that the royalties are split, right? Cause I want to have like some go to the show, some go to the guest, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, it's a pretty timely uh, question. So Solana actually recently, the major exchanges, uh, not the ones I mentioned, but Magic Eden has 70 to 80%, uh, if not more of the market share, they went to 0% creator royalties because there was Essentially, they wanted to continue the volume. They raised that at $1.2 billion valuation and other exchanges decided that they weren't going to enforce creator royalties. So what that did was for people who are just getting into this to speculate, I don't have to pay 5% or 10% to the creator anymore. I can keep that in my pocket, which allows me to trade. Like, right, I could buy it for one pool and sell it for 1.1 and make the 0.1, where if there's a 10 or 12% fee, I've now lost money. So I increased the liquidity but exchange art is for the creators by the creators, right? Like that's not their tagline, but that's who they are. They are for artists. They enforce the they enforce the royalties. So you can split it up on every NFT and everything. You can have it. So, you know, if you do Entangled Podcast One, you could have fifty percent go to you, fifty percent to the speaker, and then Entangled Podcast Two, it could be. 25% to entangled podcast one holders. And like you could just do whatever you want on each NFT collection. Is is that very hard from a technical perspective to build or is it pretty cookie cutter? So I think it's pretty, that's why you use these exchanges, right? If you wanted to, you could create your own webpage and mint on your own webpage on entangled.io or something like that. But you would have to hire a developer to do all the backend stuff. That's why you do it on Exchange Art. You'd pay them. Okay. Would you be able to help me with this kind of stuff on Exchange Art? I'd be able to definitely put you in contact with the team that could walk. Okay, awesome. Right? Like, they would be like way better. And I have friends who are artists that, you know, do this kind of all the time. So I'd be happy to put the two of you on a call and just kind of have them run you through of they've minted, say, couple thousand nfts on exchange art they can tell you exactly how it works and stuff like that could you uh, introduce me to boombox as well yeah absolutely man i'm pumped this is going to be a, a fun project and again i what i think is really cool is like the community on solana like these are all were started by people in the community that saw a need there wasn't any audio visual nfts so this one kid i know went out and said you know i'm a music producer i want a way for musicians to make more than the zero 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 point one cent or whatever you get per stream on Spotify. And like, I've got a, a friend that sells on there and he'll, he sold a piece of art for $50, like a, a beat that he made for 50 bucks. And he's like, I literally could have never made $50 from my music without that. And I think that's so empowering. It's so cool to see that people are interested in that, right? Like they want to support these artists and these creators. Um, with their passion. And that's what really drew me to the Solana ecosystem was this like collaborative nature and just the idea that, you know, they, that we don't enjoy traditional systems, right? It's not fair that Spotify makes all this money and musicians don't. Or even the traditional music industry, it's dominated by like three companies. It's a freaking oligopoly. It's crazy. And they just, they, they, they take all the economics from the artists. It's wild. 
Exactly. And this like boombox marketplace, you know, takes like a small percentage fee. But when you look at it from the grand scheme of things, again, selling one NFT and one beat for $50 is probably more than this person would have ever seen through their Spotify plays in a lifetime. Right. It's crazy, man. Well, Blaine, this has been such a blast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I do have one more topic I want to ask you about before we end. Um, but before we do that, do you have anything, uh, or sorry, any uh, anywhere that folks can find you or reach out to you if they have questions or want to learn more? Yeah, um, you know, if people are interested, then my personal email at blaineroden at gmail.com. So B-L-A-I-N-E-R-H-O-D-E-N at gmail.com is a great place to kind of reach out to me and, you know, get some happy to give feedback and, you know, whatever my uh, limited knowledge can be of help, just, you know, happy to talk to you about it. It's an industry I'm deeply interested in. So always happy to talk. Awesome, man. Awesome, man. So with that, would love to get your thoughts on, you know, what happens with the economic system from here, right? I mean, how, how do things continue to develop from, the traditional economy to crypto, you know, do they integrate? What happens? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great question. I think there's just so many possibilities. I think we're going to continue to see pushback from the traditional financial system until we get to what I think is like a boiling point, right? Where there's so many people using crypto assets and using blockchain technology that the government won't be able to fight it without looking like a purely evil player, right? Like if there's just all of these people using it. So I think there'll be a point where, and I think you're seeing it now with a lot of people in the younger generations are just so digitally focused, right? They grew up using a computer and blockchain technology is super interesting to them. And it's not like my dad who has trouble logging on to his email, right? They, they can code even if they didn't ever go to school for coding, right? They're just so into it. So I think as we become more of a digital society, you're going to see more people looking to digital assets especially like you see people use Apple Pay. So people are going to continue to use things like Solana Pay and use blockchain technology because of how frictionless it is. I mean, Venmo takes four days to get to your bank account. And that used to be the coolest thing ever. Now I'm like, four days? Like, are you kidding me? I can get it in four seconds on Solana. So I think as the friction decreases on blockchain because of these better infrastructure and you know user interface, and the friction exists on traditional financial systems, you'll see more people move to the blockchain technology. And as more people move, like there's just, you won't be able to vote for someone like Elizabeth Warren that has such a terrible understanding of the industry. And I think that's going to kind of be the tipping point is when people say, so many people use it. Like, are you, you're just purely doing this for an ulterior motive. It's not to protect consumers. It's not to, you know, keep strength in our economy. I think it's, to keep power in a select few people. And I think you've seen more and more people wake up to it. I mean, in, in 2012 or 2014, even you're talking about Bitcoin and stuff like that. People thought you were kind of crazy. Like it's really weird. And now it's, I mean, there's so many people I talk to that you would never expect, right. That are interested in blockchain technology. And I, my mentor is a great example. He was like, I don't, I don't really get it. He started on PayPal and I think then like six months in, he's like, I want to start a fund. He's like, this is the coolest thing in the world. Like I want to invest all my time and energy into this. And it, you know, he's like 45 years old. And just to see him go from no idea to want to do everything related to it in eight months, is just extremely telling of what's 
good way to continue to happen in the industry. You're totally right. And also, I think as people see the impact of inflation and it's hitting their livelihoods, they're like, holy shit, this matters. We can't just like, <laughs> it's crazy. I think that's a great point as inflation becomes hyperinflation and goods become more expensive and the dollar loses its purchasing power. People are going to look to alternative assets and ways that aren't affected by the federal government. And, you know, it, people will always kind of say that the federal government is, and you see it now, like they're doing things that aren't great for the average consumer. And people are going to wake up and say, hey, maybe Bitcoin is a volatile asset and it might not be the perfect asset. But man, it doesn't have this shadowy cabal behind it that is just ruining my purchasing power every single day. And, you know, again, there's still a level of concentration where people can manipulate the Bitcoin price as well. But the idea that anybody can get involved, it doesn't have to be just saw elected official or a federal agency is just gaining so much traction is so compelling. That's awesome, man. God, Blaine, this has been such a blast. I've had a great time, Jordan. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. I learned so much uh, just talking to you, you know, learning more about what's going on just in, in the actual community. It's just, it's thrilling, man. It's, it's really exciting to see. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate the time. Awesome, man. Well, we'll be in touch about uh, 200 times tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to it. All right, man. Talk to you soon. Awesome. See ya. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. In this discussion, Blaine and I considered the philosophy of Bitcoin in relation to fiat currencies and the value we believe cryptocurrencies bring to the economy. The more I've learned about the prospects of crypto and the dangerous state of our traditional economy, the more convinced I've become that the fight for human sovereignty and the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are intrinsically tied to currency independence. That Bitcoin, as an initial use case, and cryptocurrencies more broadly, are freedom. What does that mean exactly when someone says Bitcoin is freedom? Is that just hyperbole they're using, hoping the price of Bitcoin skyrockets and they become quick millionaires? Absolutely not. To me, that statement has profound, far-reaching implications. Bitcoin is freedom from the corrupting influence of central bankers and money-lending cartels. In part one of this essay, I'll summarize the last 400 years of monetary policy, showing how an organized crime syndicate led by the Rothschild family has manufactured a financial system in which wealth and resources are stolen from the public and consolidated in the hands of a few ultra-wealthy elites. In part two, I'll highlight the characteristics of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies broadly, which make them viable alternatives to escaping this hamster wheel of a financial system in which we're living. Part one, the corrupting influence of central bankers and money-lending cartels. To start, let me highlight that almost no one in the world understands how the economy works, including regulators, bankers, and investors. This is done intentionally. The cabal who controls our financial system benefits from this opaqueness because the way the economy works is so criminal. If you would like a history of how the largest organized crime racket in history developed and seized control of our global economic system, I'd point you to four books. Pawns in the Game by William Guy Carr, Secrets of the Federal Reserve by Eustace Mullins, and One Nation Under Blackmail, The Sordid Union Between Intelligence and Crime that Gave Rise to Jeffrey Epstein, Volume 1 and Volume 2 by Whitney Webb. These investigative journalists connect the dots of the true history of our financial system, a history that has been buried under propaganda and the lie that our economy is based on free market capitalism. It is not. 
It is based on oligarchy, regulatory capture, blackmail, and corruption. Here's a short summary of the actual events I believe took place to get us to the point we're at today, where the richest 85 people in the world have more wealth than the poorest 3.5 billion people. This implies the top 0.000001% of the population has more wealth than the bottom 50%. How does this happen by accident? It doesn't. Central banking in the UK and US. In the mid-1600s, an organized crime outfit originating in the Khazarian Empire of Eastern Europe instigated violent revolution in England through their agent, Oliver Cromwell. This was the initial act in destabilizing the old world colonial powers to transition power away from royalty and religious institutions to the moneylenders who financed them. This political intrigue led to the beheading of King Charles I in 1649. The fallout that ensued led to William of Orange, another agent of this crime syndicate, winning the throne in 1689. The new king immediately borrowed 1.25 million pounds from these debt lenders and in 1694 established the Bank of England. In the first four years of the central bank's existence, the British national debt grew from 1 million pounds to 16 million. This number has continued to grow exponentially, and as of mid-2022, the Bank of England's national debt stood at 2.4 trillion pounds. The monthly interest payments on this debt, about 8.7 billion pounds, are paid for and guaranteed by the British taxpayers. These interest payments to the Bank of England directly line the pockets of the cabal who has always controlled this institution since its inception. In 1773, this organized crime outfit was formalized into our cartel under the leadership of Meyer Amschel Rothschild at the first meeting of the World Revolutionary Movement. This cartel over the subsequent 250 years has grown its tentacles of deception and incorporated the institutions we today refer to as the Illuminati, the New World Order, the Cabal, and the Deep State. Yes, these organizations are all real, and there are no limits to the evil its members engage in for the sake of control, power, and depraved self-indulgence. The five sons of M.A. Rothschild established branches in the principal cities of Europe, institutions which have come to dominate the world of finance over the subsequent 250 years. The most successful of these were Nathan Meyer Rothschild in London and James Day Rothschild in Paris. Through an elaborate pump-and-dump scheme following the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, Nathan Meyer Rothschild took control of the Bank of England for the Rothschild family. By this point in time, the Bank of England had a monopoly on the creation of pound sterling and controlled the global supply of gold. The Rothschild family used covert agents to capture the U.S. financial system as as they had gained notoriety in Europe and many refused to work with the Rothschilds due to their penchant for treachery. Here's William Guy Carr explaining how the cabal fomented the American Revolution through monetary policy. In order to understand how the men who obtained control of the Bank of England and the British national debt also obtained control of the trade and commerce and the monetary system of Britain's American colonies, it will be sufficient if we pick up the threads of the story at the time Benjamin Franklin went over to England to represent the interests of the men who had been associated with him in building up the prosperity of the American colonies. Robert L. Owen, former chairman, Committee on Banking and Currency, states that when associates of the Rothschilds asked Franklin how he accounted for the prosperous conditions prevailing in the colonies, he replied, That is simple. In the colonies, we issue our own money. It is called colonial script. We issue it in proportion to the demands of trade and industry. Robert L. Owen remarked that not very long after the Rothschilds heard of this, they realized the opportunity to exploit the situation with considerable profit to themselves. The obvious thing to do was to have a law passed prohibiting the colonial officials from issuing their own money and to make it compulsory for them to obtain the money they required through the medium of the banks. 
Emir Rothschild was still in Germany, but he was supplying the British government with mercenary troops at eight pounds per man. Such was his influence in 1764 that he succeeded through the directors of the Bank of England in having laws passed in accordance with his dictates. The authorities in the colonies had to discard their script money. They had to mortgage the colonial assets and securities to the Bank of England in order to borrow the money they needed to carry on business. Referring to those facts, Benjamin Franklin stated, In one year, the conditions were so reversed that the era of prosperity ended and a depression set in to such an extent that the streets of the colonies were filled with unemployed. Franklin stated, The Bank of England refused to give more than 50% of the face value of the script when turned over as required by law. The circulating medium of exchange was thus reduced by half. Mr. Franklin disclosed the primary cause of the revolution when he said, The colonies would gladly have borne the little tax on tea and other matters had it not been that England took away from the colonies their money, which created unemployment and dissatisfaction. Suspected Rothschild agents in the first 150 years following the revolution include Alexander Hamilton, George Peabody, Junius Morgan, Nicholas Biddle, J.P. Morgan, Jakob Schiff, Otto Kahn, Paul Warburg, and Bernard Baruch. These men established many of the most powerful financial institutions today, including J.P. Morgan Chase, Brown Brothers Harriman, and Kuhn Loeb & Co., now part of Barclays. While many U.S. banks failed during the panics of 1837, 1857, 1893, and 1907, these cabal-backed institutions carried on and ultimately benefited from the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. In 1791, Alexander Hamilton, the first U.S. Secretary of Treasury, established the first bank of the United States at the behest of European bankers pulling the strings. This central bank had much of the same powers as the Bank of England until its charter expired in 1811. The second bank of the United States received its charter in 1816 to help in paying the war debts the U.S. incurred during the War of 1812. In 1836, President Andrew Jackson refused to extend the charter of the second bank of the United States an institution whose president was Nicholas Biddle, an agent of James Day Rothschild of Paris. Jackson said, You are a den of vipers. I intend to rout you out, and by the eternal God, I will rout you out. If the people only understood the rank injustice of our money and banking system, there would be a revolution before morning. He wasn't exaggerating. The cabal responded to Jackson by aggravating the Panic of 1837 when the Bank of England in one day threw out all the paper connected with the United States, refusing to accept any securities, bonds, or financial paper in the U.S. The purpose was to create an immediate financial panic, cause a complete contraction of credit, halt further issues of stocks and bonds, and ruin those seeking to turn the United States securities into cash. The plan worked. In 1891, a secret association known as the Round Table was formed between the Rothschilds, Cecil Rhodes, and J.P. Morgan, amongst others. This organization evolved into the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London, the Council on Foreign Relations in the U.S., and globalist organizations including the Trilateral Commission and the Bilderberg Group. These organizations have colluded to choose the leading government officials on both sides of the pond ever since. This has resulted in increasing levels of regulatory capture and further entwined the interests of big banking with those of politics. The cabal's crowning achievement took place following a covert meeting in November of 1910, three years after they had orchestrated the Panic of 1907. Eight men conspired at Jekyll Island to craft a plan that resulted in the formation of the Federal Reserve. The eight men in attendance at Jekyll Island were all acting as agents of the Rothschild family. They were Senator Nelson Aldrich, the father-in-law of John D. Rockefeller Jr. and head of the National Monetary Commission, Arthur Shelton, Aldrich's private secretary and special assistant of the National Monetary System, 
Apiot Andrew, Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. Frank Vanderlip, President of the National City Bank of New York. Henry P. Davison, Senior Partner of J.P. Morgan Company. Charles D. Norton, President of First National Bank of New York. Benjamin Strong of J.P. Morgan Co. And Paul Warburg, Partner of Kuhn Loeb & Co. and one of the original members of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. The Federal Reserve Act was signed into law in 1913 by President Woodrow Wilson, whose election had been bought and paid for by the cabal. On Substack, I've included a political cartoon from 1912 arguing against the creation of the Fed as it would result in an octopus monster that controls the White House, Congress, the U.S. Treasury, commercial banks, Wall Street, farming, and industry. This is exactly what has happened over the subsequent 110 years. The Federal Reserve, Den of Thieves. The Federal Reserve for the past 110 years has claimed that it is not owned by anyone and that it is a decentralized operating structure of 12 Federal Reserve banks. However, the government has never owned a single share of stock in any Federal Reserve bank, of which the New York Federal Reserve is by far the most important. Rather, the stock is all owned by private corporations, namely the banks responsible for the conspiracy that led to its creation. So who owns the Federal Reserve today? While underlining... While underlying ownership data is difficult to obtain due to obfuscation, it's believed that about 80% of the New York Fed is owned by just eight families. The Goldman Sachs, Rockefellers, Lehmans, and Kuhn Loeb's in the U.S., and the Rothschilds, Warburgs, Lazards, and Israel Moses Seifs in Europe. When the Federal Reserve was initially formed, a fraction of the money it printed had to be backed by gold. However, in the late 1960s, the U.S. was experiencing a run on gold. President Nixon stepped in to temporarily detach the U.S. dollar from the gold standard, which ended up being a permanent decision. While the Federal Reserve had a monopoly on money printing in the U.S., this decision could have dramatically lowered foreign demand for the U.S. dollar. In stepped Henry Kissinger, who colluded with the King of Saudi Arabia to ensure that OPEC nations could only sell their oil in U.S. dollars, a decision which stands today and has further entangled U.S. fiscal and monetary policy with the interests of big oil. Any foreign leader who attempts to sell oil in other currencies, such as Saddam Hussein attempted in 2000, is met with opposition from the U.S. military-industrial complex. But more on that topic for another day. The result is that today, the money printed by the Federal Reserve is backed by absolutely nothing. Here's Congressman Wright-Patman explaining how the process of money creation works. The dollar represents a $1 debt to the Federal Reserve system. The Federal Reserve banks create money out of thin air to buy government bonds from the United States Treasury, lending money into circulation at interest by bookkeeping entries of checkbook credit to the United States Treasury. The Treasury writes up an interest-bearing bond for $1 billion. The Federal Reserve gives the Treasury a $1 billion credit for the bond and has created out of nothing a $1 billion debt, which the American people are obligated to pay with interest. Now, the cabal who controls the Federal Reserve can create money out of thin air, then charge interest and principal on this paper to the American taxpayers. This creates an exceptionally dangerous situation where the Fed is encouraged to keep printing more money. This in turn drives inflation, increases the cost of living for the public, and increases the cost to service the debt. When the Fed was created, U.S. national debt was almost non-existent. Today, the national debt stands at over $31 trillion. At the time of publication, Congress is debating increasing the debt ceiling again for the 79th time since 1960. These skyrocketing levels of debt resulted in the U.S. spending $232 billion of taxpayer dollars on interest alone in quarter one of 2023, 50% more than in quarter one of 2022. Who benefits from these interest payments? The same cabal who has always profiteered from the central banking Ponzi scheme. The 110-year racket. 
Immediately after the Federal Reserve was created, the cabal began abusing this institution for their own self-interest. Here's Eustace Mullins explaining what happened next. The first task of the Federal Reserve System would be to finance World War I. The European nations were already bankrupt because they had maintained large standing armies for almost 50 years, a situation created by their own central banks, and therefore they could not finance a war. A central bank always imposes a tremendous burden on the nation for rearmament and defense in order to create an inextinguishable debt, simultaneously creating a military dictatorship and enslaving the people to pay the interest on the debt which the bankers have artificially created. The men in control of the Fed went on to orchestrate, second, the Agricultural Depression of 1920, third, the Black Friday crash on Wall Street of October, 20, of October 1929, and the ensuing Great Depression, fourth, World War II, fifth, the conversion of the assets of the United States and its citizens from real property to paper assets from 1945 to the present, transforming a victorious America and foremost world power in 1945 to the world's largest debtor nation. Over the past century... The cabal has corrupted the most powerful institutions in the world, the military, intelligence agencies, Fortune 500 corporations, politics, Hollywood, academia, etc., often through blackmail by capturing elites and lewd sexual activities. Many of these elites are entrapped through sex with children. Concurrently, the cabal has orchestrated conflicts and revolutions across the globe, profiting from war debts, human trafficking, arms dealing, and drug smuggling in the process. On Substack, I've created a chart that shows how the banks represented a Jekyll Island, National City Bank, First National Bank, J.P. Morgan Company, and Kuhn Co. subsequently became Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Barclays, respectively. I've also highlighted the Federal Reserve Directors, Treasury Secretaries, and Banking Executives who are members of the Council on Foreign Relations. Finally, I've highlighted these institutions' ties to the Rothschild crime family and to corrupt intelligence asset, money launderer, arms dealer, human trafficker, and child rapist Jeffrey Epstein. I'd like to wrap up the section with some thoughts on how the economy actually works. Here are seven points to highlight. Number one, the cabal controls the most important hard assets in fiat currencies. Number two, by controlling the supply of all the most important currencies, these banks can then create credit and charge interest on the paper money they've created out of nothing. Number three, whenever they issue new credit, the buyers of these bonds are commercial banks, asset managers, and Fortune 1000 corporations, which they also own. Those corporations then have immediate purchasing power before prices have adjusted so they can spend this money at pre-inflation prices. Number four, by the time the money printed trickles its way through the economy to the individual consumer, prices have adjusted and our purchasing power has been reduced by inflation. Number five, meanwhile, because this cabal controls the supply of money, interest rates, and most of the global wealth under management, they can orchestrate financial crises whenever it suits them to pull the rug out from the economy, such as during the 2008 financial crisis. All the while, the bankers collect higher amounts of interest on an increasing quantum of debt. Number six, in these depressed points in market cycles, cabal-controlled corporations can buy up competitors for pennies on the dollar while also using their pawns in government to justify bailouts that transfer money from the public to the banks. For example, when First Republic Bank collapsed earlier this month, J.P. Morgan got to purchase $185 billion worth of assets for $10.6 billion. And number seven, these financial crises are often coordinated in tandem with other disasters, including food shortages, energy crises, geopolitical conflicts, and or global pandemics. These additional triggers increase the public sphere and willingness to give up civil liberties as well as to transfer tax dollars to multinational corporations for emergency use. This global economic enslavement must end. Enter Bitcoin. Part two, cryptocurrency and emancipation through currency independence. Satoshi Nakamoto published the Bitcoin white paper in October of 2008. 
The identity of Satoshi remains a mystery, but the implications of what he, she, they started cannot be understated. A few months after publishing the white paper, Satoshi posted on an online message board. I've developed a new open source peer-to-peer e-cash system called Bitcoin. It's completely decentralized with no central server or trusted parties because everything is based on crypto proof instead of trust. And with that, a revolution was born. Satoshi's white paper was published during the depths of the global financial crisis. The GFC was a period of economic panic when the largest banks in the world siphoned trillions of dollars from American taxpayers to prevent a financial collapse which they had created. Citigroup, which was formed from two Rothschild-controlled banks represented at Jekyll Island, was the largest beneficiary of the bailout, receiving over $517 billion. Satoshi recognized the dangers present in central banks and trusted third parties as financial intermediaries who can form money-lending cartels. Satoshi's solution was a decentralized peer-to-peer system in which the total number of Bitcoins would be algorithmically constrained to 21 million total Bitcoin. This genius element of scarcity removes the risk of inflation in Bitcoin because, unlike fiat currencies, central bankers cannot print more Bitcoin. The risks of hyperinflation in fiat currencies are real and dangerous, which we're seeing play out in real time with the U.S. dollar. Bitcoin's blockchain continues to be built out as the underlying network of computers or nodes running Bitcoin software validate transactions on the chain. Bitcoin miners who participate in the validation process by contributing computing power are rewarded with additional BTC for validating these transactions. Another genius of Satoshi's methodology was to ensure that after every 210,000 blocks are mined, the reward for mining is halved. This ensured that the earliest adopters benefit the most from Bitcoin's broad adoption and that by the time the establishment caught on to Bitcoin's potential, it was already too late. They could not now gain control of the asset because of its decentralized nature and algorithmic halving. This is exactly why we're now seeing governments cracking down on cryptocurrencies. The Empire Strikes Back About one and a half years ago, I published an essay titled Bitcoin vs. Gold and Hedging the Collapse of the U.S. Dollar, in which I expressed my gratitude for the existence of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as a hedge in case the U.S. dollar collapses. Unfortunately, the likelihood of the dollar collapsing has only increased since that time. I hate to say it, but I believe the cabal is intentionally pushing the U.S. dollar towards collapse to incite panic and economic depression. It's for this exact reason that we must understand what makes something a monetary asset and how crypto can help us avoid economic disaster. In Matt Huang's white paper, Bitcoin for the Open-Minded Skeptic, he highlights the metrics as to what makes something a monetary asset. Scarcity, portability, fungibility, divisibility, durability, and broad acceptance. Bitcoin scores strongly on all of these metrics except broad acceptance, although that is changing by the day. Huang further recognized that Bitcoin has additional non-traditional monetary features such as being digital, programmable, decentralized, censorship resistant, and universal. These are all incredibly valuable at a time when the American public is is losing faith in the U.S. dollar as a monetary asset, and rightfully so. Now, one elected official who has been outspoken against Bitcoin is Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. Curious how Elizabeth break up the big banks Warren is against cryptocurrency when they arguably represent the public's best chance to escape economic enslavement. You don't think it's possible an elected politician would lie to the American public to protect the financial institutions she or he truly represent, do you? Here's Senator Warren last year on Meet the Press. With Bitcoin, there's no thing that backs it up. And, and that's what makes it different. It's just belief. You and I assess 
you assess the value is going to go down. I assess it's going to go up, and therefore I buy. So it's no. So it's more like this artwork. No, no, because at the end of the day, I can hang that thing on my wall, right? And I can enjoy it, or I can it. throw darts at it. Um, you could sell it for money. Sure, you can. Right. I mean, there are features about it that are the same, but it's it's not the same. And look. One of the things we have to remember about, there are a lot of things that come within this crypto world. So, for example, we could be talking about, instead of Bitcoin, we could be talking about digital currency. Now, that's something very different. I think that's different, too. I buy that. I accept that. That's right, because that's a Mm -hmm. government-backed electronic transfer. And it can be denominated in dollars. It could be denominated in euros. It could be denominated in some new language that's made up. But that has something that backs it up. It has a government that says, if at the end of the day there's a run on this stuff, everybody wants theirs out, the United States government promises there will be something to back it up. Um, And uh, that's what banks are about. There'll be somebody there to back it up. But with Bitcoin, that's not the case. Of course, Warren here fails to acknowledge that the U.S. dollar also has no thing that backs it up, much less that a private cartel of banking families are the sole beneficiaries of money printing. In this interview, Warren goes on to support the creation of central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, which completely invert the purpose of cryptocurrencies by centralizing power and control in the hands of the government. But the U.S. government could never be culpable of waste, fraud, and abuse, right? Warren then goes on to criticize cryptocurrencies for their ability to facilitate black market industries such as drug smuggling and human trafficking. Here again, she fails to acknowledge how these massive industries and the criminals who control them have already exploited the traditional financial system for their personal gain. For example, here's an interesting lawsuit filed by the government of the U.S. Virgin Islands against J.P. Morgan Chase in December of 2022. Government of the United States Virgin Islands versus J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. Complaint and demand for a jury trial. Plaintiff, Government of the United States Virgin Islands, files this complaint against JPMorgan Chase Bank for violations of Trafficking Victims Protection Act, the Virgin Islands Criminally Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, and the Virgin Islands Consumer Fraud and Deceptive Business Practices Act, and in support thereof alleges as follows. This action stems from an enforcement action the government filed against the estate of Jeffrey E. Epstein, the co-executors of this estate, and various entities relating to Jeffrey Epstein under the Virgin Islands Criminally Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. The Attorney General brings this action after presenting her findings to J.P. Morgan in September of 2022 in her ongoing effort to protect public safety and to hold accountable those who facilitated or participated in, directly or indirectly, the trafficking enterprise Epstein helmed. The investigation revealed that J.P. Morgan knowingly negligently and unlawfully provided and pulled the levers through which recruiters and victims were paid and was indispensable to the operation and concealment of the Epstein trafficking enterprise. Financial institutions can connect or choke human trafficking networks and enforcement actions filed and injunctive relief obtained by attorneys generals are essential to assure that enterprises like Epstein's cannot flourish in the future. At all relevant times, J.P. Morgan engaged in business in the Virgin Islands, including, but not limited to, the acts and practices described herein. As described below, based on documents reviewed and interviews conducted by the government, 
JP, JP Morgan knowingly facilitated, sustained, and concealed the human trafficking network operated by Jeffrey Epstein from his home and base in the Virgin Islands and financially benefited from this participation directly or indirectly by failing to comply with federal banking regulations. JP Morgan facilitated and concealed wire and cash transactions that raised suspicion of and were in fact part of a criminal enterprise whose currency was the sexual servitude of dozens of women and girls in and beyond the Virgin Islands. Human trafficking was the principal business of the accounts Epstein maintained at JP Morgan. Upon information and belief, JP Morgan turned a blind eye to evidence of human trafficking over more than a decade because of Epstein's own financial footprint and because of the deals and clients that Epstein brought and promised to bring to the bank. These decisions were advocated and approved at the senior levels of JP Morgan, including by the former chief executive of its asset management division and investment bank, whose inappropriate relationship with Epstein should have been evident to the bank. Indeed, it was only after Epstein's death that JP Morgan belatedly complied with federal banking regulations regarding Epstein's accounts. The lawsuit goes on to name Jez Staley, head of JP Morgan's private bank, as intimately connected to Jeffrey Epstein. Staley had gone on to run Barclays as CEO following his time at JP Morgan, then was removed from that position due to his Epstein ties. When we get into the meat of the lawsuit, sections two and three, the document is almost entirely redacted. Why? While this lawsuit against JP Morgan was developing, JP Morgan's CEO, Jamie Diamond, continued with business as usual. He went on CNBC in January of 2023 and had this to say about Bitcoin. Uh, we, we, we pretty much always have some crypto conversation with you. I'm just curious because I don't think we've I, talked to you since. I think all that's been a waste of time. And why you guys waste any breath on us is totally beyond me. Because you just think the whole thing just is, is going to zero, going to zero and it's fake. Bitcoin itself is a, is a hyped up fraud. It's a pet rock. You're back to that? Yeah, really? Of course, yeah. Been done, There's some so. tokens that, that I agree with you on, but, but Bitcoin's based on a distributed ledger. It has all the characteristics of, of a store of value. It, I, it's immutable, it, it's scarce. Uh, it, totally untrue. It's, it, it, 21 million. Well, yeah, really. How do you know it's going to stop at 21 million? Because it's, I mentioned it's, this to people. Satoshi, too. It's, Every, it's, everyone says that. Well, maybe it's going to get to 21 million, and Satoshi's picture is going to come up and laugh at you all. <laughs> <laughs> say, no, no. There, there, there isn't a picture. And by, and by then, Satoshi will take it out billions of dollars. Jamie, there's a difference between saying FTX is a, a decentralized Ponzi scheme and saying that crypto itself is a, is a Ponzi scheme. That's like, I mean, Madoff created crypto options. Crypto itself that doesn't do anything is a pet rock. You, you're happy to Bitcoin. Own, yeah, you can own it all you want. I, 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 I'm just talking. I I mean, it, there's a lot. It's, a, it's billions Listen, of guys, dollars. I don't care about Bitcoin, so we should drop the subject. Two months after Diamond dismissively informed CNBC's audience that Bitcoin is a pet rock Ponzi scheme, investigative journalist Whitney Webb published an article titled The Rise of Jamie Diamond. Here's some of what she had to say. In a hearing in the U.S. Virgin Islands case against J.P. Morgan earlier this month, a USVI lawyer argued that the CEO of J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon, knew in 2008 that his billionaire client, Jeffrey Epstein, was a sex trafficker. The lawyer, Mimi Liu, also stated that former J.P. Morgan executive Jess Staley also knew this about Epstein at the time, but noted, This case was not just Jess Staley. There will be numerous documents that go far beyond his office to the executive suite. Lou also asserted that Staley knew, Diamond knew, J.P. Morgan Chase knew about Epstein's criminal activities against minors. While the bank has disputed that Diamond knew anything about Epstein's accounts at the bank or what he was really up to at the time, 
This unlimited hangout investigation, a multi-part series, will reveal that Diamond's rise to the top post at J.P. Morgan was intimately linked to the very same group of people who enabled Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking activities, as well as his extensive financial crimes. Given Diamond's ties to Epstein associates like The Limited's Leslie Wexner, Columbus-area real estate developer John W. Kessler, and Chicago's Crown family, J.P. Morgan's claims that Diamond never knew what Jeffrey Epstein was up to during his time with the bank becomes much harder to believe. Furthermore, the players discussed here, Diamond and Epstein among them, were instrumental in the creation of what would manifest as the 2008 economic crisis. Not unlike some of the events that sparked today's banking crisis, figures like Jeffrey Epstein, Diamond's mentor Sandy Weil, and the former Treasury secretaries with close associations with both men, Robert Rubin and Larry Summers, appeared to have engaged in actions that would intentionally provoke the collapse of certain banks to further consolidate the banking sector for their benefit. The goal, both then and now, seems to have been a move towards the logical conclusion of the too-big-to-fail banking model, the eventual creation of a centralized cartel of megabanks that dominate not only commercial banking, but also central banking. When the corrupt elites, the institutions they control, and their puppets in elected office insist Bitcoin is a sham, your antenna should be popping up. That perhaps, instead of blindly following their illogical, self-serving arguments, we should understand the philosophy of Bitcoin and how cryptocurrencies can help solve the corruption inherent in central banking and money lending cartels. The decline of empire in the changing world order. If our current economic system continues to deteriorate, we should expect our government to increase currency controls as a last attempt in maintaining centralized control. Ray Dalio highlights how these dynamics typically play out for declining empires and reserve currencies in his book, The Changing World Order. Anyone who studies history can see that no system of government, no economic system, no currency, and no empire lasts forever. Yet almost everyone is surprised and ruined when they fail. A reserve currency is a currency that is accepted around the world for transactions and savings. The country that gets to print the world's primary currency, now the U.S., but this has changed through history, is in a very powerful position. And debt that is denominated in the world's reserve currency, i.e. the U.S. dollar-denominated debt now, is the most fundamental building block for the world's capital markets and the world's economies. It is also the case that all reserve currencies in the past have ceased to be reserve currencies, often coming to traumatic ends for the countries that enjoyed the special power. The decline phase typically comes from an internal economic weakness, together with internal fighting, or from costly external fighting, or both. Typically, the country's decline comes gradually and then suddenly. Internally, when debts become very large and there is an economic downturn and the empire can no longer borrow the money necessary to repay its debts, this creates great domestic hardships and forces the country to choose between defaulting on its debts and printing a lot of new money. The country nearly always chooses to print a lot of new money, at first gradually and eventually massively. This devalues the currency and raises inflation. Typically at those times when the government has problems funding itself, at the same time as there are bad financial and economic conditions, and large wealth values and political gaps, there are great increases in internal conflicts between the rich and poor in different ethnic, religious, and racial groups. 
This leads to political extremism that shows up as populism on the left or of the right. Those of the left seek to redistribute the wealth, while those of the right seek to maintain the wealth in the hands of the rich. This is the anti-capitalist phase when capitalism, capitalists, and the elites in general are blamed for the problems. Typically during such times, taxes on the rich rise, and when the rich fear their wealth and well-being will be taken away, they move to places, assets, and currencies they feel safer in. These outflows reduce the country's tax revenue, which leads to a classic self-reinforcing, hollowing-out process. When the flight of wealth gets bad enough, the country outlaws it. Those seeking to get out begin to panic. These turbulent conditions undermine productivity, which shrinks the economic pie and causes more conflict about how to divide the shrinking resources. Populist leaders emerge from both sides and pledge to take control and bring about order. That's when democracy is most challenged because it fails to control the anarchy and because the move to a strong populist leader who will bring order to the chaos is most likely. As conflict within the country escalates, it leads to some form of revolution or civil war to redistribute wealth and force big changes. This can be peaceful and maintain the existing internal order, but it's more often violent and changes the order. It's only when the forces that produce internal disorder and instability align with an external challenge that the entire world order can change. Externally, when there is a rising great power that is capable of challenging the existing great power and existing world order, there is a rising risk of great international conflicts, especially if there is internal conflict going on within the existing great power. Typically, the rising international opponent will seek to exploit this domestic weakness. This is especially true if the rising international power has built up a comparable military. Defending oneself against foreign rivals requires great military spending, which has to occur even as domestic economic conditions are deteriorating and the leading great power can least afford it. Since there is no viable system for peacefully adjudicating international disputes, these conflicts are typically resolved through tests of power. As bolder challenges are made, the leading empire is faced with the difficult choice of fighting or retreating. Fighting and losing are the worst, but retreating is bad too because it allows the opposition to progress and it shows that one is weak to those other countries that are considering what side to be on. Poor economic conditions cause more fighting for wealth and power, which inevitably leads to some kind of war. Wars are terribly costly. At the same time, they produce the necessary tectonic shifts that realign the world order to the new reality of wealth and power. When those holding the reserve currency and debt of the declining empire lose faith and sell them, that marks the end of its big cycle. When all of these forces line up, indebtedness, civil war slash revolution at home, war abroad, and a loss of faith in the currency, a change in the world order is typically at hand. The uncomfortable truth is that the United States and the U.S. dollar are fast approaching the end of the big cycle. We can repeat the same mistakes of the past, leading to internal revolution and geopolitical conflict, or we can choose a better path forward. What's different this time is that we have the technology readily available to break the chains of central bankers and money-lending cartels. Emancipation through currency independence. The beauty of Bitcoin is not just its decentralized global ledger insulated from the self-serving regulations of any individual government, although this is certainly a key breakthrough. The critical element of Bitcoin is that it serves as an initial use case for the viability of cryptocurrencies broadly. The cabal has been able to control the economic system because they control all the most important monetary assets, the dollar, the euro, the pound, gold, silver, etc. However, with cryptocurrencies, we now have infinite 
viable options with which to transact. If the public loses confidence in Bitcoin, they can easily switch to ETH or Matic or Solano or Cardano, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Furthermore, I expect cryptocurrencies and NFTs will revolutionize the foundational principles of economics to create a more equitable, productive system for all. I encourage my listeners to take a sober look at where the U.S. dollar and economy stands today and the geopolitical events driving us towards World War III. We can play into the hands of the war financiers, the drug smugglers, the human traffickers, and the arms dealers. Or we can emancipate ourselves from the financial ties that bind once and for all. Learn about cryptocurrencies, understand how to self-custody your assets, and notify your elected officials that we will not accept laws that prohibit the free flow of currency exchange. Transitioning from the traditional economy to a decentralized economy will not be easy, but it's endeavor worth the fight. Today, we are on the brink of the emancipation of humanity through currency independence. So I guess all that's left to say is, Bitcoin to the moon. <laughs>